You're now listening to the sound of a podcast on a little movie called The Sound of Music. Your ears are alive with great insights into those larks who are learning to pray. Hey, welcome to Sanity at the Movies. We are talking about one of the most beloved films of all time. Let me just, before I even introduce the fellows, let me set the stage though, because everybody loved this movie. I mean, the New York Times says, or said at the time of its release, the whole thing is being staged by Mr. Wise in a cozy cum corny fashion that even theater people know is old hat. Everybody loves this movie. Time Magazine said, though director Robert Wise has made capital of the show's virtues, he can do little to disguise its faults. In dialogue, song, and story, Sound of Music still contains too much sugar, too little spice. Viewers who want a movie to swell around them in big warm blobs will find Sound of Music easy to take. Sterner types may resist at the outset, but are apt to loosen up after a buoyant heels in the air song or two by Julie Andrews. Influential 20th century pol- critic Pauline Kikio, probably the most influential of 20th century critics, wrote a review so nasty that it reportedly got her fired from her job at McCall's because they were like, hey, people love Sound of Music. She called the movie the sugar-coated lie that people seem to want to eat and the single most repressive influence on artistic freedom in the movies. And if that's not enough, I'd like to quote a little bit more from her review. This is a tribute to freshness that is so mechanically engineered and so shrewdly calculated that the background music rises, the already soft focus blurs and melts, and upon the instant you can hear all those noses blowing in the theater. Whom could this operetta offend? Only those of us who, despite the fact that we may respond, loathe being manipulated in this way and are aware of how cheap and ready-made are the responses we are made to feel. We may even we may become even more aware of the way we have been termed into emotional and aesthetic imbeciles when we hear ourselves humming the sickly, goody-good songs, squeezed again, and the moisture comes out of thousands, millions of eyes and noses. Wasn't there perhaps one little Von Trapp who didn't want to sing his head off or who screamed that he wouldn't act out little glockenspiel routines for Papa's party guests or who got nervous and threw up if he had to get on stage? (laughs) Joan Didion for Vogue wrote, quote, more embarrassing than most, if only because of its suggestion that history need not happen to people like Julie Andrews and Christopher Plummer. (laughs) Just whistle a happy tune and leave the onchless behind. Douglas McClure, that great actor, said that watching Sound of Music is like being beaten to death by a Hallmark card. <laughs> Judith Christ, wow. the critic, said calorie counters, diabetics, and grown-ups from, 80, from 8 to 80 had best beware. Christopher Plummer, we'll end with him, <laughs> liked to call it the sound of mucus. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Christopher Plummer himself. Christopher Blummer himself. He came around very late in life. He did not show up for the 40th anniversary, but he showed up for the 45th anniversary. And I think he realized, well, they're going to carve this thing on my tombstone. (laughs) And my tombstone is fast approaching. So (laughs) maybe I better make my peace with it. But he always had, I'm not even going to say a love-hate relationship. He just hated it. He kind of hated being associated with Sound of Music and he always had a lot of respect for Julie Andrews. And I don't think Christopher Plummer is a monster. I can imagine being in his shoes and being a great Shakespearean actor and a really interesting character actor and having people 
approach me on the street and all they want to do. You're Captain Von Trapp. Hey, it's Captain Von Trapp. Sing Edelweiss. <laughs> I can imagine that being annoying. I mean, we have all had the experience, I think, doing podcasts and stuff of people appreciating the wrong thing. I mean, it sounds a little snobby because, yeah. of course, you you want to be happy that they appreciate anything at all. But sometimes there's something that you didn't put your heart into or that wasn't your favorite thing you did and people really respond to it. And yeah. it can be frustrating if there's some other things that you really have put your heart into and you want them to respond to those. Anyway, guys, that is a little setup for... Songwriters, I think that's <laughs> where I feel that even more. Yeah, yeah. The Oh, you like the songs that I don't like and the ones that I wish I'd never written or the ones that I wish I could could have just found that one way to make it really great, but you don't respond to the ones that I really... Right. Really I was doing love. something really interesting over here, really challenging. I want you to see it. I want you to appreciate it. Over here, this came easy. This was simple. Exactly. And you love it. Like I knew you would. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is it is something that us, us artists have to, have to deal with. Yeah. I mean, I've always kind of thought, I, I'm very annoyed with Tom York when he says he doesn't want to play Creep. It's like, just, just play, play the it. Song. And, then, yeah. and then do whatever you want. But just, just give the people Creep. Like, it doesn't matter. that You made a fortune. You're, you live in a mansion. You have swimming pools. You're... Creep, creep bought you the ability to sit in your mansion and be pretentious about all of your music for the mm -hmm. rest of your life. Right. Your, your great-grandchildren will be taken care of because of Creep. So play it. It takes three minutes and then do whatever you want. Similarly, I do think that Christopher Plummer should have been maybe a better sport. And I'm glad he finally came around. It would be sad if he had never yeah. come around on Sound of Music. Because, <clears throat> I mean, his obit said, Sound of Music actor dies. I mean, like, <laughs> you've yeah. got to make your peace with that stuff at some point. And you got to be a good sport and happy that you've been blessed and that people know you for anything at all. But in any case, guys, we are talking about Sound of Music, one of the most beloved movies of the 20th century. And, and who are we? Well, I'm Nathan. I'm your humble and obedient... Goat herd, very lonely, <laughs> and we've got Ben there. He is the captain. I don't know. It's, the captain. It's hard to associate. Captain of cinema. The captain of cinema. <laughs> yes. And Ben, why don't you introduce? Yodelay, 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 yodelay. Why don't you introduce the? Let me let me yodelay it on. Yep. <laughs> yeah, listener. <laughs> yes, it's Jake Pastor, who's a. Master of music. <laughs> pastor who's a master of music. Yep. <laughs> yep. We've got the lonely goat herd, the captain, and the pastor who's a master of music. <laughs> Brother. Well, this is a musical that I think everybody just loves this, right? I mean... Yeah. Who doesn't love it? Apart from snobby, snotty critics from the 60s. The snobby, snotty critics from the 60s. It wasn't particularly critically well-received when it came out, but like I said, the... Legend, at least, is that Pauline Kael, who's a very important figure in critical analysis and cinema, the legend is that she got fired because she didn't like sound of music. She got, <laughs> they were like, yeah, we're canceling you. <laughs> I, yeah, I remember years ago, Every, somehow. In well-deserved. <laughs> well. If, <laughs> I remember years ago somehow finding a book of Pauline Kael's criticism. Mm -hmm. I I, maybe Roger Ebert clued me into who she was because she was like his... It, one of his muses, Yeah, for sure. that's right, his yeah. muses. And I just remember paging through her book of movie reviews and I was like, does she like any movies? I don't think so. I'm just like, no, there's, there's nothing that she likes. At least nothing that I was familiar with or thought I liked. Well, if you've ever read a review so, in So, she's the... a kindred spirit. To me? <laughs> hey! <laughs> 
say what? That's what people would say about us. You guys don't like anything. Well, yeah, people yeah, would say true. that. But if you've ever actually read, uh, people just uh, have no conception of how criticism is supposed to work. I, well, okay, this is not uh, me making a snobby Mr. Snob. That's Misunderstood. I like the way that you handled that, Nathan. Yeah. <laughs> people don't understand us because they're stupid. <laughs> it's not that we're snobs. It's that they're dumb. No, no, no. There's a big difference between you, – you may think we're too hard on people and stuff like that, but go find any a copy of The New Yorker or look it up online and read one of their reviews and see how out of touch they are with the common man, how much the critic is just playing games with words and with semantics and how much you can't even tell what they think about the movie by the end. Like basically they just did some critical acrobatics and kind of made a bunch of snotty jokes about – the fact that they're even watching a movie, any New Yorker review of anything is kind of like that. And they all get their tone from, from two people, I'd say, from Dorothy Parker, the famously acidic wit of the early 20th century, and then from Pauline Kael. Like, they're both just, they're, they're always just, the, the vo they, those people kind of created the critical voice of the New Yorker, and it's a really obnoxious. And both of them actually do it well. I like reading Pauline Kael. Like, she's good at it. And mm -hmm. so, obviously, Dorothy Parker is a very famous mm -hmm. wit. But, man, downstream of them, it's so obnoxious. It's, like I said, you, can, you can't even tell what they think about the movie most of the time. It's like they spend so much time dunking on the idea of the movie that you're not even sure what they think. So it ends up being bad critical analysis. Anyway, you didn't come here to hear our opinions on Pauline Kale, I don't think. You came here to hear our opinions on Sound of Music. There's all kinds of fun context and stuff to get into for this one. But Ben, what is your baggage with Sound of Music? Mm. Mm, grew up watching it as a kid. Shown it all the time till we got sick of it. Mm -hmm. mm, we li I liked it. I liked it. But after there was definitely a point where it was too much. Right. It was just played too many times. I think the last time I saw it would have been, oh man, maybe preteen years. Okay. Maybe. This was the first time coming back to it for a long time? I guess so. But it, and there were, there were things I had forgotten, but a ton of it was just still there in my memory. So. Yeah. I find that anything to do with the kids is just like, I know every beat of it. I can predict everything. Anything to do with the more adult stuff, probably the stuff that I tuned out as a kid, the Baroness and Max, like there, there were new things to mm -hmm. remember. Yeah, I forgot a bunch of that discover stuff. Discover mm -hmm. there. Definitely. And there was some fun, like for a movie that does have a reputation as just being the corny musical of all music, like even if you like it, it you, it's kind of light and fluffy and there's a lot of interesting adult stuff in this movie. Yeah. But. And some fun lines and some good dialogue where, hey, they put some elbow grease into that joke. Like. Yeah. Well, Ernest Lehman wrote the script, the guy that wrote Sabrina, the guy that wrote North by Northwest. So you can really hear his voice, that, oh, that, that just yeah. super sophisticated. Well, and the, the real stand-in for that is How Clumsy of Me. Yeah. How that, like, to me, yes. is the best joke of the movie and the, maybe the best line that just says, we care. Yeah, yeah. You flatter me. Oh, how comes it? I'm into accuse. I'm into accuse. That was great. Yeah, that's, that's just a very drawing room barbed wit kind of thing that it, yeah. North by Northwest, the James Mason has a lot of lines like that. Cary Grant, Ernest Lehman's just good at that kind of dialogue. <laughs> and for all I know, it comes from the original stage show. But and, and, but it, it's like, hey, there's stuff here. It again, I think, makes you feel bad about Christopher Plummer dissociating himself because 
they gave him stuff to play and he played it and he played it well. And well, that, that he, line's a great example of that. He finds so much to do. He's so interesting. I mean, yeah, he brings a lot of humor. I mean, I guess we'll talk about it when we actually talk about the movie, but he brings a lot of sardonic humor to the parts where the captain is a jerk. Like yeah. he's already pretty funny and witty and likable mm-hmm. in those scenes. And then... Even his introduction. Yeah, yeah. Right. In the future, you will remember that rooms... I mean, he, he just, he knows how to deliver that stuff so well. And even when he's whistling for the kids and stuff, like, mm-hmm. he plays it with a certain sense of humor. The little girl's reading the book. She's going to take the book. She's going to bend over. He's going to swat. It's like, yep. It's, yeah. it, there's just yep. a certain amount of whimsy to how he plays Mr. Cold-Hearted Authoritarian. And then once he's redeemed, he's so sardonic and sarcastic and kind of still a disciplinarian with the scene where he... He just feels completely consistent. You yeah. have this what is written as this huge turn of this horrible, oppressive dad who then becomes the sweet dad with the guitar who's sitting around and singing and watching the puppet show. And Right. But there's latent sweetness in the beginning and there's the disciplinarian guy is still He's there. He's still there. And so it just he does such a good job of creating a, a consistent character that's both in the writing and in the performance. That's just like... There's just nothing to be ashamed of about. No, it's a great performance. It's, it's a, great... a really great performance of a really well-designed character from top to bottom. And it's a character that in the wrong hands could be boring. I think it's a tribute to his skill right. and the deafness with which he handles it. Like well, you, you take a, a, a what's-his-face. Oh, this isn't fair. But it's not fair to my fair lady. But the, but the what's Rex, his face? Rex Harrison. Harrison. Yeah, you take him and put him in that position. He he can't do that. No. Well, he couldn't do the turn. It's one of the things that I've never bought about my fair lady. Exactly. The turn. Yep. I mean, you could argue that's part of the charm and point of my fair lady, but. Well, anything that has a turn quite l- like this one, you always you always see it. A Pride and Prejudice adaptation is a really great example of this. Like what actor has really, really given you the Darcy of the first half of the book and the Darcy of the second half of the book. They always lean hard one way or the other, and they very rarely thread that that needle. And as a casting director, do you cast for the redemption or do you cast for the the first part? Yeah. George C. Scott is going to be a better evil Scrooge than he is a redeemed Scrooge, although I like, I think he does a great redeemed Scrooge. But yeah. We always, yeah. We always, Jake always likes to say Alistair Sims' redeemed Scrooge is his favorite. Yeah. It's kind of, yeah. Um, mm, agreed. I mean, you can't argue with somersaults or whatever it is. Standing on yeah. his head in the chair yeah. mm-hmm. and scaring the maid. Scaring the maid and throwing his hair yeah. forward yeah. and just like little touches like that. that <laughs> the, the smile that was there underneath it all. Right. There's a there's a, a sincerity to that that you never get with George C. Scott. Yeah, I mean George C. Scott, like you still don't want to mess with this <laughs> That's guy. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Even in his redeemed state, you're sort of always on your toes. <laughs> yeah, I mean George C. Scott just he might be e- evil. Scrooge is still underneath there, <laughs> right? Yeah, or at the very least, General Patton. Yeah, That's right. Like, That's right. <laughs> this guy just exudes authority. Jake, what's your sound of music history? Grew up with it. Didn't grow up with it to the degree that Ben did, where it was like, ever got sick of it. It was just sort of like hmm. enough of it to have a lot of fun associations. And I would say it's like one of those things where when you're writing something like a season of a show, like the villa or whatever you have in your head, you know, you want to leave the audience wanting more. Mm-hmm. If you If you do too much that 
there's just a certain line there. Yeah. And uh, Sound of Music is one of those one of those things that just was rich enough and infrequent enough that I was always glad to have it on and always forgot about the puppet show or forgot about yeah any number of little things in there that are like, oh, yeah. That just sort of like always wanted more of that and never really got the chance to fully wrap my head around that movie. And then I think the adult stuff too in the second half where it gets kind of dark. Mm-hmm. Although I suspect like Fiddler on the Roof or whatever, I can't say this for sure, but probably it's the kind of thing where we ended up watching the first half and kids maybe didn't persevere through the second, because it's a long movie. Well, Fiddler on the Roof is a really interesting example because, or or counter example, because you just don't want to watch the second half. That's right. Anytime I watch Fiddler on the Roof, I'm like, oh no, there's this whole second half. All the good songs are over. Now it's just a depressing slog towards dad, yeah, and, dad losing his authority and Russia being destroyed. <laughs> yeah, and, and it makes you not ever want to watch Fiddler on the Roof in the first place unless you've given yourself permission to just stop halfway. Right. Or hmm. or you've said, I guess I'll be depressed or whatever, yeah. Did you guys, you guys grow up watching Fiddler on the Roof? I, not like Sound of Music, but it was definitely a thing. Not like Sound of Music. Yeah, but we just weren't a musical type of family. Mm-hmm. But there are always a couple of musicals that were in anything sure. with Julie Andrews, like Mary Poppins or Sound of Music. Right. And by anything, I mean Mary, Mary Poppins, Poppins or yeah. Sound of Music. <laughs> what else is there? <laughs> Who cares? That's it. Yeah. But Mary Poppins, we would have watched more often. It's got more sugar in it. Mm-hmm. So, and you need more than a spoonful with kids, it turns out. Yeah. Yep. Well, she's good at playing governesses that redeem cold-hearted dads yeah she is nice one-two punch so it was there it wasn't like a a fixture or anything that i ever got tired of or had enough of that i even felt like i wrapped my head fully around it and then it came back as a dad and i love it and i can't remember the last time i've watched it without crying and we probably watch it once or twice a year i want to say you just used it as a sermon illustration. I did, yeah. I forgot that we were we had this scheduled, but it was like the time had come, and it was just like a it was a rainy day, it was a rainy Saturday, and it just like storming all day, and all the kids were in the house, and were they wearing warm woolen mittens? They were not. They were not because it's summertime. Stupid question. But I just I was stressed out for any number of reasons. And one of those reasons was the pressure I felt of the sermon I had to preach. You kept blowing your whistle and none of your family would come. Yeah. Yeah. I just kept blowing the whistle. Nobody would come. Nobody would respond. They were trying to run around in drapes and yeah, I was just at my wits end. So I, I needed a governess to get the kids in line and put me at my ease. And so who better, who better than Julie Andrews. So I, I flipped it on. And it, the other thing about a movie like that, it's going to hold the kids' attention and you're so you're familiar enough with the beats of it that you can actually maybe get some work done without getting sucked into it. And so mm-hmm. it was just sort of like, relax, take a deep breath, here's some comfort food, and everybody's going to enjoy it and come away happier and, and sadder, and, but it's just a nice movie. So yeah, threw it in mm-hmm. and then... But because I was working on my sermon while it was on, it worked its way into the sermon. So, yep, not a bad movie to have do that. 
I feel like my baggage with Sound of Music, what wasn't it Oscar Wilde who said children begin by loving Sound of Music and as they grow older, they judge it and sometimes they forgive it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that's what he said. I think that's what he said. Yeah, I mean, that's my story with a lot of those things. I don't think I was ever a hater of Sound of Music. I think I've been pretty aware of... It would have been very easy for me as a teenager and as a contrarian to hate Sound of Music, but... I was very aware of the fact that anyone who was a contrarian hated Sound of Music, and so I needed to go that third level of contrarian and therefore like Sound of Music. Mm. Plus, it's pretty good. Pretty good. That's a masterpiece, actually. But it is one of those fun things where it was just kind of an inevitable fact of life as a kid. I mean, actually, the Oscar Wilde quote, which is about parents, is a pretty good analogy because when you're a kid, your parents are just inevitable. They exist. You don't judge them one way or another. And then you're like, huh, my parents are people. They have distinct personalities. And then if you're lucky, you get older and you're like, my parents are great. And that's kind of, and I can now see that objectively speaking, instead of just as something that I accepted as inevitable. And that's kind of my history with Sound of Music. There's a whole slew of things like that, that I've rediscovered a lot of the classic Disney movies, or I just remember in my early 20s, rewatching them or listening to the soundtracks and just realizing there's a mind at work behind this and there's quality to this. And mm-hmm. this is this is cool and exciting. And now I don't know that I've actually watched Sound of Music through since I was a kid, but. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I had this experience just this morning with the world that we live in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the last several days I've woken up, I've naturally gotten up about 5.30 or 6 in the morning before everybody else and gone outside and read my Bible and just sort of taken in the world around me. And the psalm I read this morning was spent some time just musing on God creating the world and the nations being a drop in the bucket, although it's not the psalm that says the nations are a drop in the bucket, but just nations rise, nations fall. And so in the midst of all the, and the psalmist is assailed on every side or whatever, but the sun rises and the sun sets and God holds it all together with his word. And so there's only praise and rejoicing is all that is actually fitting. And it was just that moment of you grow up and you're amazed and the world's full of wonder. And then you get weary of the world and cynical and see all the ways it sucks. And mm-hmm. then you step back and have those moments where you can step back and just see Eh, it's always been this way and actually God's not mocked and the nations rage and the sun rises and there's nothing they can do about it. Mm -hmm. And the birds sing and there's nothing they can do about it. And the trees are actually pretty and there's nothing they can do about it. And soon they'll be dead. Mm -hmm. And if, and when God brings his hammer down, he'll do it like he does to every nation that rises up against him. And the sun will keep rising and the stars will keep shining. And it's just, and it is goodness and loving kindness that actually envelops the world and mercy every morning. Anyhow, I don't know. I was just, that, that pattern of, that Oscar Wilde pattern is all over the place. Mm-hmm. Just in terms of loving, accepting, embracing, judging, and then stepping back and... But only by God's mercy, stepping back and having gratitude and sweetness and 
seeing the big picture. Yep. The people that don't have gratitude are like her zeller sitting there while everybody sings Edelweiss being a grump and a Nazi. Well, let's talk about the context of this very, one of the most important movies probably of the 20th century. I mean, just not, just in terms of as, as a touchstone, as a piece of iconography, as a thing that everybody's seen, everybody like it or lump it has, a, has it as a reference point. Mm-hmm. Sound of Music has got to be in the top five movies like that. I mean, far and away, much, much more than, what could you say, the Shawshank Redemption? You know, Sound of Music is just like everybody's. Wizard of Oz, I guess, would be on the list. Yeah, but Wizard of Oz will die eventually. I mean, people will continue to see it as an artifact. Oh, I don't know. It's pretty good, but I, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm crazy. I but... never cared. I never liked it as a kid much. Yeah, I just, yeah, I didn't either. And I don't really care to show it to my, like, I think I've shown it maybe to my kids once. It doesn't have an emotional, doesn't have anything. Yeah, it's just not there for you in the same way. No. It was, it's more of a piece of its time than something that's good that has any truly indelible qualities i I suspect i think for a certain kind of girl it might resonate a little bit more but i see what you're saying but yes i I agree it's not near it's not the potency of sound of music which works for everybody no matter old young well nazis don't like it this was not a big hit in germany that was one of the things that i found out in my research (laughs) you don't say (laughs) it was a hit worldwide big in hong kong big in a, a, a bunch of places that I thought were interesting, but the Germans somehow didn't like this movie. They, very they much. made their money off their own comedy dramas about the Von Trapp family, from what I what I saw. Yes, well, then that brings us into a section that I'd like you to head up, which is the story of the real Von Trapp family. We should talk about them real quick. The real Von Trapps. Yeah. All right. Are we going to get to listen to them sing? Yes, I'll do each of their voices oh, one okay. at a time. You kind of have to put them together. I mean, there are videos on YouTube of it. Yeah, it's very. I, I, didn't, a, I didn't look up. They're, they're doing like the descendant singing. Cool. And they do chorals and madrigals, and it, it's very ornate, old-fashioned Austrian yep. folk kind of. Yep. It's nothing like the Broadway show tunes of Sound of Music. Right. Well, but you can find like the descendants doing the Sound of Music. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, sure, of like course. Yeah. I haven't looked up any of these this in stuff. a very uh, modern, <laughs> stylized sort of way. Right. Actually. I did see like one the of grandchildren or great grandchildren. Yeah, yeah, they're still they're still making money off this thing. That's right. I did see someone saying that it's hard to find what they did because not many printed programs survive. So there's just very few like actual. Oh, these are the songs they performed. You you have a few surviving Christmas programs, madrigals and chorales, like you were saying. Yeah, yeah folk tunes, but in an in an ornate way. Yeah, if you see them, if you were to see them in the time, they'd be somber they'd be intricate they'd be ornate it'd feel like a real kind of sophisticated not sophisticated in the sense of like adult sophistication but just like a, a very honed classically classically trained, trained very, per- performance very piece. expert yeah <clears throat> very very catholic very religious yes all right so maria augusta cochera that's how i'm going to pronounce her name was born in 1905 and was an orphan by age seven. Don't know why. Raised by an anti-Catholic atheist, maybe relative. Atheist, socialist. Yeah. Quite a passionate hater of God, I think. Yeah. Interestingly. Yeah. And then... But somewhere in her childhood, she must have done something good. She must have done something good. Yes. That's a yeah, very Catholic sentiment. No, it's not. <laughs> Hold on a second here. Yeah. That, 
That is a it's a random out of place it's a, song. Yeah, it's my a very. Opinion. Oh crap! I have to write a new song for this movie, <laughs> and Hammerstein's dead. <laughs> it's like the worst song in the movie. It is. It is that, and having the mother superior give her a, a really excellent talk about God, and then sing "Follow Your Dreams." Yeah, we'll, just we'll, follow your dreams. We'll but, get to we'll, it. I know, I know, we'll get there. But hey, all right. So at at some point, I think when she started college, she went into a Catholic church, thinking she was going to hear a concert heard a message about the gospel or something like that, or God, and became convicted, had a change of heart, and decided she wanted to enter a convent. So, she was a postulate. I think that's the right word. The movie gets that right. And she was sent to the Von Trapp family, not as a governess, but as a tutor for a daughter who was recovering from scarlet fever. This is 1926, a house outside Salzburg. And I think if I remember, because all the children's names are changed from the movie, yes. none of them is the same. But I think one of the children was named Maria. Yes. And I think that that was Liesel in the yes. movie. I think I, that's the oldest child. So, yeah. so she, was, she was the tutor. But the family was already musical. She didn't bring that. And Baron Von Trapp was a gentle, sweet, kind man who was mourning still the loss of his wife. The family was really hurt by that, but he was not, he, he wasn't, he, he hadn't become hard of heart towards his kids. Yeah, I'll tell you something if else. If anybody was, it was Maria. Well, yeah, that's, that's pretty funny to read. Like, M- Maria was, well, I don't have the right word, but she... <laughs> she was just hot-tempered. She'd fly off the she, handle. She, she, would, she would fly off the, the handle and shock everyone. I saw one of the, one of the children say that they would just try to try to get by because the next minute she would usually be very sweet and pleasant. Yeah, she sounds a little, I guess we'd say bipolar now, but yes. a, a, a yeah. kind and very religious woman. I mean, uh, well yes. well loved, but just she had a, <laughs> she had a temper apparently. Yeah. The quote yeah. I read said that Georg was often shocked by her temper and would kind of <laughs> retreat a little bit, which is pretty funny to think about in re- relation to the movie, but Yeah, it yeah. It is pretty funny, it, but he fell in love with her, I guess, and I think he saw how much she loved the children, and the children loved her. He, by the way, um, a highly decorated submarine commander. I don't think that comes across in, no, in the movie, not but at all. That, that is what he was famous for in World War One, Right, and he was 25 years her senior, I believe, and he, so she, she loved the children, he asked her to marry him, and he put it like, come be a mother to my children. And, but she, she, just like Maria in the movie, she felt a duty to God and wanted to be part of the convent. But the nuns told her, it sounds like it's God's will for you to be the mother in this family. So, go do God's will. <laughs> <laughs> so, that, that, it's really interesting to me that that's the common, that's the like non-fictionalized stuff. Yeah. Because that's some of the most non-Broadway feeling drama in the movie. Just like, this is really good. Why did they write this this way? <laughs> they, because it happened that way. Because yeah, they more or less refuse to reflect the deep faith that's that's explicit and sometimes implicit here in their songs, but it's in the script explicitly. All right, so getting ahead of myself, but she she decided to marry him even though she didn't she wasn't in love with him. She loved the children, and then she said that later she came to love him more than anyone else. So under with 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 Maria and the family, they got going musically more than they had before, but not because and they became famous across Austria. They won, I think, the 1926 Salzburg Music Festival. 
Or is it, no, 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 1936. So they were married sorry. in 1927, 11 go. years before they had to, that's one of the big, yeah. cha- the movie really compresses the timeline. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the sorry. couple had three children together, I guess it's worth yep. saying. And then they started mm-hmm. working on music under not, Mac, Max is a completely made up mm-hmm. character for the story. There was a Roman Catholic priest, Reverend Franz Warner, who <laughs> tutored the children in Renaissance and Baroque music, was apparently their musical tutor, like a pretty influential, almost their their agent and everything right. for like 20 years 20 or years, something. Yeah. But in 1936, they won. They, they actually did win the choral competition at the Salzburg Festival, just like the movie. And then they did a tour of, tour of Europe before the evil Nazis in 1938 is when the... The Auschwitz or whatever they call it. Anschluss. Is that how you say that? Yeah. Starts. Yeah. So, yeah. So, highly compressed in the movie. That's right. that's two years. They win the Salzburg Festival. The Nazis come a couple of years later. There is, the Nazis do try to press Georg into a naval commission, which he refuses. And he also refuses to sing it Hitler's birthday. <laughs> I think that's... not very sporting. Of him. <laughs> that's an awesome detail that I wish the movie included. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Oh, man. Hitler wanted the Von Trapp family singers for oh, his birthday. That's, yeah, that's fantastic. <laughs> so, here's, here's, here's a quote from the oldest daughter, Maria, so Liesel in the movie, about fleeing Austria, first to Italy and then to New York. We did tell people that we were going to America to sing, and we did not climb over mountains with all our heavy suitcases and <laughs> instruments. We left by train, pretending nothing. That's what she said about that. So it's not exactly dramatic, but it was, sounds traumatic, just to leave everything, and I think arrive quite poor in New York. Yeah. No, yeah, that's what I remember reading. Yeah. Yeah, they were described as arriving penniless, although I think they had an agent in New York, so they, they had some hope of a... A security blanket or a parachute. An income. Yeah. Yeah. But they really did leave behind just the family estates and things and didn't, were able to capitalize on any of that. Yeah. I mean, I think the central emotional crux of the movie is correct. They just compress it and heighten it a little bit as you'd expect mm-hmm. a movie to do. Yeah, that's right. So, they Which get- is the most annoying thing actually about those critical reviews, like the idea that Oh, yeah, you just walked away and escaped. It's like, I think the movie did a good job of making you feel like... History did happen to them. History did happen to them, and they left behind everything. And it's really horrible and sad. Yeah, yeah. It's also annoying in those reviews. What did one of the... Was it Kale or someone else who said, like, the kid... That they were irritated to think that the Von Trapp kids were so willing to sing Mm -hmm. and weren't either terrified of of performing or brats and i think you don't i don't i don't have this quote in the notes in front of me but one of the kids said like we were aristocratic like and we represented high culture Mm -hmm. and that was part of our identity and we weren't ashamed of it and people don't and so i just feel like those critics are the brats like why aren't you why aren't you spoiled and bad-tempered and afraid how dare you express nobility and portray it for me in a stage musical? Mm-hmm. I just think, what a stupid attitude. Yeah, they actually want the people in the movie to be less Degraded. noble than they were in yeah. life. Like, yeah. some, sometimes people are noble. Sometimes kids are Two helpful kids. and cute and good. It's just all the movie did was switch, <laughs> switch who was bad-tempered. <laughs> right. I suppose. Anyway, so, yeah, December 10th, 1938, they give a concert in New York at Town Hall. And the New York Times likes them and talks about talks about them. And 
Here's a quote. There was something unusually lovable and appealing about the modest, serious singers of this little family aggregation as they formed a close semicircle about their self-effacing director, which I guess would have been the priest, for their initial offering. The handsome Mademoiselle von Trapp in simple black and the youthful sisters garbed in black and white Austrian folk costumes enlivened with red ribbons. It was only natural to expect work of exceeding refinement from them. And one was not disappointed in this, unquote. <laughs> There's a good snobby critic review. That's right. That's and one good, was not disappointed. One was not disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> so then they, they toured Europe and the United States. The seven daughters and three sons did madrigals, old carols, Austrian folk stuff. And like Edelweiss. Like Edelweiss, I hope. Yeah, that, that, I, that great <laughs> Austrian great folk Austrian, song. Yeah. Just like that. Old Man River, also by <laughs> Hart uh, or by Rogers, is a great uh, African spiritual. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> it's so funny. The guy wrote two songs that are more well known as exemplifying those two cultures, cultures. that aren't his than any of their actual songs are. Uh, that's yeah. hilarious. Yeah. All right, so... For 15 years, they did Christmas concerts at Town Hall. The Baron died when he was 57. That was in 1947. But the family continued to perform around the world until 1955. And the Baroness, you know, Maria, lectured and wrote on the family's hardship, their faith in God and unity. I remember I read a quote from her that said that when they, as, 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 the, as the Nazi shadow was cast over Austria, they were thinking of getting out in terms of we are not going to let our children be educated by these pagans with their pagan religion and pagan philosophy. Hmm. We are, we are, we're Catholics, we're Christians. And that was their attitude. So she, she cast it in that quote all in terms of, this is about our religion, this is about our faith in God. And that's how, that's how she talks from what I could tell. She was a missionary for, for years in New Guinea after the Baron's death with a couple of her stepchildren or, or maybe biological children. I can't remember who is who. And I think... I don't, I'm getting confused because I've just gone over some of this recently, but one of the daughters was a missionary in New Guinea for like 30 years. So they were really serious Catholics. Yeah. They were not just cultural Catholics. They were like full on Roman Catholic and that was what they wanted to represent to the world. So I think that's about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, Pretty the, interesting the only people. thing I'll add is uh, Baroness Von Trapp Maria said she only received about $500,000 in royalties, which sounds like a decent amount for the time, but nothing like what the movie made, nothing like what she probably deserved for, for being the Maria. But she was always a good sport about it, said the movie had spread a message about God and about hope, and she stood behind the message and was happy that it had gotten out there. And happy that their story would have been told. I think the family was a little hurt that their father was portrayed as being yeah, so I've, cold. I remember seeing yeah. a lot of quotes about that. The thing that they were most offended by. Yeah. Yeah. Or but hurt, I, hurt by might be the better way to. Yeah. I mean, I think they were happy that the story got out. And I think even that they were like, well, Maria did show up and heal our family. So there's something real there. There's something that, mm -hmm. that, huh. that resonates with us and that we'd like the world to know about. But on the other hand, <laughs> did you have to make our father into a jerk in order to tell mm -hmm. that story? Yes. Yes, yes we did. <laughs> yes, we did. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't change it. Well, okay. So let me talk about Rodgers and Hammerstein next because they are arguably some of the most important figures in certainly in musical theater, maybe mm -hmm. just in 20th century pop culture. Uh, they, I mean, if you like musicals, they changed musicals. They, they gave us the modern musical. 
And what they did was so innovative and changed everything so dramatically that we just don't even see it anymore because everything is 100% downstream of them. And it's like, you, you watch Oklahoma, you watch Sound of Music, you just, you don't see anything innovative. Like you do not think, wow, mm-hmm. this is doing something new and interesting. But that's because everybody since has done 100% of what they've done. So in order to understand that, you have to understand where musical theater was before these guys. And I think the two touch points that we have that we've talked about on this show that I can point to, at number one, Swing Time, the Rogers and Astaire, or the, not Rogers and Astaire, yeah, Astaire and Rogers movie. Yep. Swing Time is a very high gloss Hollywood version of the kind of things that were popular on Broadway. It's very boy meets girl. There's no psychological depth to it. The songs don't really propel the story forward. They're just to show off the dressing. The, yeah. The, 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 the talents of the stars. Now, Astaire and Rogers is interesting, maybe kind of a bad example because in fact, they do do a lot of, there, there is a lot of sexual tension that's subtextual and interesting in those story in, in the way they do it. And some of the songs play to that and express that very well. But there is also a number of songs where it's just like, Astaire's really good at dancing. Let's just watch him dance. Mm-hmm. An even better touch point for musical theater is a movie that we reviewed on in the early days of the show called Yankee Doodle Dandy, which tells the story of George M. Cohen, who was a huge musical theater guy, really popular. And none of his stuff has really come down to us precisely because his type of story got his type of Broadway show got blown out of the water by Rodgers and Hammerstein and what they did. But if you remember in the movie Yankee Doodle Dandy, the kind of shows that they show George M. Cohen is writing, it's just this really cheesy, lots of great songs and stuff, but it's all about singing. It's all about dancing. It's all about putting on a show. There's no psychological depth to it. Mm-hmm. There's no, the characters are just the simplest archetypes, you know. It's just variety show yeah, it's just stuff. For a variety show, boy meets girl, you know, maybe mm-hmm. with a little plot to kind of. The, the, the songs are just catchy tunes that are incidental to the plot. Right, exactly. For the most part. Hmm. And the plot is like, will he win the horse race and get his money so Yankee Doodle Dandy can get the girl? Uh, <laughs> it's, just, it's just like there's nothing to really invest in. It's just a fun night at the theater. And Rodgers and Hammerstein completely changed that. And the show that they changed it with first was Oklahoma, which came out in 1943. And Oklahoma has characters with psychological depth. They might not seem that deep if you watch it now, although I think they might. But compared to like a George M. Cohen show or something like that, you've got like Judd and he's this kind of sinister, scarred, but and yet some somehow a little bit sympathetic villain. And he's obviously got designs on the girl and you take them really seriously and it's really scary. So you've got characters that have real depth you've got songs that always propel the story forward that always tell you something about the characters and you've got a whole lot of sexuality not in a gross way but just in a it's there and we're talking about it and we're kind of acknowledging that these characters desire each other that they're circling around each other it's exactly what sound of music does with the the triad between the baroness and maria and the Captain. Uh, the captain. There's, there's just a lot of potency to that story. And all that stuff was absolutely groundbreaking. The idea that a musical 
on the stage would have a real story that we were expected as an audience to invest in with real characters and that there'd be some depth and that it would have something to say about the human condition, about sex, about men, women, about... And that the music would be used to say some of it. Right. And that the music would be used to say something, some Mm -hmm. of it. It was all just so new. I mean, they won a special Pulitzer Prize for Oklahoma, like the Pulitzer Committee. It's it's not one of the prizes they usually give, but they're just like, this is such a profound thing that we're going to give you guys a Pulitzer. So... They both had partners, just to to back up for a minute, they both had partners before they they started working together. Rogers and Hart were a team. You may see their names if you like to watch old movies and stuff. They did a lot of shows that you might recognize the name, like Connecticut Yankees, Babes in Arms, Pal Joey, stuff like that. Hammerstein, who was the lyricist, worked with Jerome Kern as a musician, and they are very famous for doing Showboat, which was kind of the first foray into doing something more psychological and character driven and of course introduced the song old man river which we were just talking about and some other standards but they both ended up breaking up with their partners i think rogers and hart broke up because hart was succumbing to alcoholism and so rogers as the musician teams up with hammerstein as the lyricist they do oklahoma it's a big hit it changes everything like i just said and They're just really good together and they're both really talented. I think the other thing to maybe say about the nature of their talent is Hammerstein always said he didn't have a big vocabulary. He just wrote simple lyrics. And so you think about the opening number of Oklahoma, oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what Mm -hmm. a beautiful day. I got a beautiful feeling. Everything's going my way. It's not poetry of the first order. It's not like a deeply metaphorical think about the opening number of sound the hills are alive with the sound of music with songs they have sung it's a little bit more poetic but it's very simple and it lets the music do a lot of the work and then you can you think about like an astaire and rogers song some of them are wonderful but they're so suffused with wordplay and wit Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. they're so quick and and, you know that's its own genius Mm -hmm. but the genius of hammerstein was to just let the character and let the situation do its work and keep everything simple. He's a lot like, if you've ever heard us on the booking, talk about Hemingway and the iceberg theory where you say as little as possible, but you let the things that you do say hold a lot of meaning and have a lot under the surface. That's, that's what he was a master of. And he was a master of just being humble and letting the music, knowing that a lyric like, oh, what a beautiful morning, while it might not seem transcendent by itself, you hook it up with the right music and suddenly you've got an all-time classic mm-hmm. song. And so Hammerstein especially is just one of the great lyricists of the of the 20th century, I think I would say. I mean, you put, I'd put him up there with, I think Irving Berlin and him would maybe be neck and neck in terms of people who contributed genius stuff to the American songbook. And you've got the Disney duo. Yeah, and the Disney duo, uh, Mencken and Ashman was the lyricist for them. We've talked about them. Yeah, I couldn't pull Ashman. I could only pull Mencken. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think Ashman's actually maybe a little bit more, generally speaking, in the old mold of witty rhyme piled on much rhyme. Much more sophisticated. Yeah, much more sophisticated. Oh, man, yeah. uh, although he can do ballads with the best of them. I mean, Beauty and the Beast is a great ballad. Like, he's in part of your world. But part of your world is a little bit more in what I'm casting today is the Astaire and Rogers school, you know, the... Yeah. Lots of rhymes. Oh, uh, yeah. Bright young women, sick of swimming. That's very, yeah. that kind of thing is what he's good at. But people are good <laughs> at different things. Anyway, Hammerstein's really good at simple, 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 simple and yet profound. I mean, he's, he's, he's good at 
say what you want about climb every mountain and my family always fast forward the darn thing. But if anybody can pull that off, if anybody can make that work, if anybody can find those simple, almost cliched, but not quite cliched metaphors that in anybody else's hands would be rubbish, but in his hands are just going to sing, it's Hammerstein. I was listening to somebody talk just recently about the use of cliche. Yeah. He wasn't talking this way. He read a paragraph and he was like, did the writer, was the writer aware that every single word coming out of this character's mouth was just strung together cliche? And I sat there not knowing anything about the book that he was talking about, Mm -hmm. but thinking it's just so interesting. He, he could have been, Mm -hmm. he really could have been. The character could be the kind of person that only speaks in cliches. But if he didn't, or if he wasn't like, man, I mean, I just, what I heard was a paragraph taken out of context that could have been incredibly hack or spot on. And it all depended on how it was used. Right. Are we telling the story of somebody who only talks in these tired, this tired way or. mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause we all know people like that. right? Right. We all know people who in the moment, like I think of this, so this person was giving a speech to guys like going out to, to, to battle, to die or something like that. And it was just stacked cliches. And it's just like, well, actually, I mean, I've been on the baseball team or the basketball team with the team captain who only knows how to talk in the cliches that he's gathered from movie speeches. Mm-hmm. And I can imagine the captain or a commander of a whatever doing the exact same thing and not actually having his once more to the breach, dear friends moment. Right. So it just depends on the story that you're trying to tell. Well, there's the additional complication of people who use cliches well and people, I mean, there is such a thing as a coach who has something desperately important to say and uses all the best cliches to say it, say it, say it perfectly. Yeah. Well, yeah. And a lot of that is like, okay, do we have the coach that, knows his team right? <laughs> and how to wield the cliche and how to use his shorthand to get the job done. Right. Do you have a coach that is nothing but jargon and cliche with no meaning? I mean, how many coaches are actual poets? Right. Hmm. Well, in Hammerstein, just think about climb every mountain. It does border on right? Climb every mountain, ford every stream, follow every rainbow. I mean, you kind of want to throw up, but it really straddles the line pretty well. It really straddles. I mean, it, it is the song that maybe falls over the line, if you want to say that. Any, besides, and something good, I, which, mm-hmm. which is not a Hammerstein lyric. Hammerstein was dead by that time. Rogers wrote the lyrics and the music for I Have Confidence and for Something Good, both of which I think you can tell they're, yeah. they're, they're inferior lyrics and they're kind of corny. Yeah. But I Have Confidence works in the film because yeah. it has, there's so much energy. Yeah, I think it's got the beautiful Salzburg locations. It's got beautiful what's-her-face. It's got Julie Andrews just sort of with her empty guitar case, hiking up her skirt, ready Mm. to go into an impossible, scary situation. Yeah, it works. Uh, It works. Something good replaces a song from the musical, which I've never heard, apparently is better than that song, but it's still just kind of out of nowhere, like what does this have to do with these two characters? That's right. And I think Hammerstein wouldn't have made that mistake. He would have found something that was in the nature of who these two people were and what was bringing them together to, to, to write their love song as opposed to just something kind of random. Uh, You know, there's a read on that song that doesn't feel random, but the read has to do with Julie Andrews and not with Maria. What do you mean? I just mean, 
part of the ability of Julie Andrews to pull off the role of Maria or Mary Poppins is her ability to exude this sort of, it's sort of like what we were talking about with, I forget what movie we uh, were reviewing, but Meg Ryan, mm-hmm. just her, the ability to exude just a sort of sweet innocence and there being some kind of deep sadness. Yes. Yes. Beneath it. Right. Maria up until that moment doesn't give you any of the story of the actual Maria who was an orphan or whatever else. Mm -hmm. Right. But in that moment, you get that thing that you know is true of Julie Andrews, that there's actually deep, right. Deep sadness and something about her childhood that made her who she is. Yeah. And And both a really wonderful, sad, but horribly broken. Yeah. Sort of way. And so it doesn't fit Maria. It doesn't fit the movie, but it, the, there is. I think it works a, for Julie Andrews. I think. Yeah, right. I think there's a touch of it that really works for Julie Andrews and highlights something that's true about her. I don't love it for either Christopher Plummer or the captain. I think it's. No, it's stupid. Especially because he's that's really, really stupid. He's yeah. really pressing his advantage in that moment. He's, yeah. he's actually being pretty seductive before the song starts. And I think the hammer scene would have found a way to bridge into. To not turn it into a simpy, weird. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he would have actually probably had the captain press his advantage. I mean, one thing about- Have some potency. One, one thing about yeah. Hammerstein, when I, I couldn't dig up this quote, but I know somewhere he said, if a story isn't about sex, it's probably not worth saying, not, not worth telling. You just, I don't want to, I'm sorry if that like ruins Sound of Music for you, but you just have to understand. I don't think it should. I think it should just make you appreciate that these people were adults and they wanted to tell good Mm-hmm. adult stories and that's what oklahoma certainly is that's what sound of music is king and i all these stories are about two adult people circling each other feeling a lot of attraction for each other and there being big social problems that they have to navigate in order to get there and it's filled with a lot of real kind of sexual potency in a, in a good way i think like in, a, in, the, in the way that the best of a jane austen novel is or something like right. that like we're saying things about men and women and well and it, when you, when you do things like that it allows you to touch really beautiful profound things that everybody feels and so i mean part of the beauty and sadness of sound of music is you have a, a love story in this like difficult family situation that lots of people can relate to on any number of levels and then you have the the situation that's going on in the background of the times there are changing and everything mm. feels dark and sinister. The clouds are gathering and it's really sad because you just want to have a, that happy family right, on the happy family land. And you're trying to pull it together and try to pull a romance together while also dealing with this sense that the world is changing around you. The ground's shifting beneath your feet. And how do you, how do you balance both of those? And everybody can relate to that mm-hmm. in one way or another. Everybody from the time that movie came out until today has some reference point for feeling like the ground is shifting under their feet and things are changing and are are outside of their control and maybe dark days are coming that are inescapable and they just want to do what people have been doing for thousands of years and have a mend the things that are broken and pull together a happy family and a happy marriage and happy kids. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's sad that so much works against that. And it's beautiful to see the ways that God, in spite of all the things that happen, allow people to, that's the drama that matters. Yep. 
Yeah. 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 I mean, that is, I think that is a large part of this movie's appeal. This movie doesn't have the same kind of cultural imprint if it's not for the last third of this movie. Yeah. But you also have another story in there, which is the second third of this movie. And that is the story of this man is in kind of a cynical relationship with a woman who's age appropriate for him. And then he finds himself falling in love with the pretty young governess. And she's a great mother for his children, but also maybe he kind of in some ways belongs with the Baroness. So when the Baroness evilly sends Maria off, she doesn't say anything that's actually wrong. She doesn't. She, she, doesn't, she's just being manipulative and yeah. Yeah. But she also feels pretty fair. I think the like, Baroness is just fighting, fighting for her man. I don't actually, I'm, hmm. I'm, I'm not team Baroness, but. Hmm, I, I don't think, feel bad about her either. Yeah, I don't feel bad about her. I think she does what she has she to. She sees a threat. Hmm. She had this man on the hook. She is a she is a she's a woman who who wants a good man and the captain's a good man and she She's not marrying him for her money. She's she's got all the money in the world. She has all the money that she needs. Mm-hmm. She wants the man. Yeah. She she's not comfortable with the children and that's the part where she feels a little sinister maybe. Yeah. But Max, have you heard of boarding school? This wonderful thing called boarding school, whatever. Mm. But she's fighting for her for her man, and the governess is just kind of keeps slipping it, or not the go- yeah, the governess keeps slipping in on her turf. The twenty year old governess, I yeah. mean, it's and it's like, mm-hmm. and the governess is really good with kids, and she's not, and it's like, and there's seven of them, and they are kind of a handful, and they put frogs in people's, yeah, and it's mm-hmm. just like. Uh, and so she goes to the governess and she says, hey, the captain's lusting after you, basically. You should do and, something. And, and you're in the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's, I mean, she is being the cat from Babe. That's <laughs> the other reference point of us. A slimy person that tricks the other person into leaving. But I just don't think there's, she, she does not tell a single lie in that scene. I mean, she just tells Maria, she just says, says hey, Maria. Hmm. You saw... I hope you saw the way that he was looking at you. You realize what's happening here. And by the way, drop the goody good act. You already know this. Like yeah. you're you're well aware of what's happening here. And you like it. And you like it. And which if I was Maria's pastor, I'd want to say the same thing. Right. I'm glad it worked out for them. I'd be I'd be rooting for Maria, but you'd, you'd have gotta to do it honestly. Yeah, you gotta do it honestly. Yeah, and the fact is if the governess if the baroness has the high position it feels like she has the power. You're neglecting the fact that Maria has a ton of power that she's actually leveraging, whether she realizes it or not. Hmm. And it it feels really it feels pretty fair to me. Yeah, the way that she handles everything, and then the sweetness with which she, the grace with which she accepts defeat. Yeah, she's really classy the way she leaves, and you realize it's a real defeat. Like she had a good man on the hooks and now she's kind of saying, well, okay, I guess I can get some playboy that's desperate for me that wants my money. I wanted a good man. This was my shot. Can't blame me for trying. Yeah. I yeah. feel bad for the bareness in that moment. Yeah, yeah definitely. She's kind of sad. The, kinda lonely. If the stupid Abby hadn't sent the prettiest hot young thing who also happens to be great me- with kids, great with kids to win the hearts of the kids and the captain because of his kids like i would have had a really great thing going for myself here and we would have been okay i really like georg it's just i have to admit i would have sucked with the kids i mean she is i tried i played bouncy ball with them and that sucked 
She is on Georg's level when it comes to frame of reference, when it comes to wit, when it comes to like class, society. And Maria is actually not. There is a sense in which the Baroness is the right choice for him. Yeah. Well, and that just illustrates what's what's what was great and what was profoundly influential about Rogers and Hammerstein, because we're not saying anything that would take them by surprise. That's all built into the story. Now, I will say in the stage production, the Baroness and Max are a little bit more venal and a little bit more evil. They're actually cleaned up a little bit for the movie. But I think all those layers of complexity and certainly the idea that the Baroness is appropriate, but that Maria is the hot young thing, they're, they're very in touch with that kind of stuff. You can see that kind of stuff in Oklahoma with Judd being the outsider who longs for whatever the girl's name is and Curly being right for her. And then the way Judd is killed in a fight and the whole community <laughs> decides to just cover it up. I mean... We're supposed to feel ambiguous about some of that stuff. It's We're supposed to feel uh, ambiguous about Curly Joe or whatever his name is, mocking Judd and making him feel like the jerk that he is. These guys are sophisticated in the stories that they want to tell. And they did a bunch of things like that. There's Carousel, which I don't know if you guys have ever seen the movie of Carousel, but it's no. like it's like all about spousal abuse. And these guys are very socially conscious, too. Not in a way that's aged poorly, for the most part. I think it's aged pretty well. Like, they didn't like the Nazis. I think that's aged well, for example. <laughs> they chose wisely. They chose wisely. The South Pacific is all about... We 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 learn to love this nurse, and then we find out she's a racist. And it's like, can she accept that the man she's in love with has mixed race children? And will this secondary humorous character be able to marry an Asian lady? King and I is obviously a pretty complex dance of politics mm-hmm. and sexuality and all this stuff. And then, and these are all they, these guys just have like Spielberg in the eighties. I don't know who else you'd compare compare them to. They just have a great run in the 50s, one of the great popular entertainer runs where they just they come out with all the things. They all hit Broadway. They're all big hits. These guys never really have a, a, misfire. a, a misfire. I mean, they have things that aren't as popular and things that haven't lasted quite as long. Flower Drum Songs, one that the racial, racial politics have aged poorly enough that it's not usually performed anymore. But Sound of Music comes out in 1959. And then Hammerstein dies in 1960 before Sound of Music has even really become the thing that it's become Hmm. uh, and certainly before the movie so there is a german film called the trap family from 1956 and then a sequel called die trap family in america and a stage director named vincent donahue sees those movies and thinks that would be a good project for mary martin who's a great broadway star of the time and originally they're going to do it as a stage play just using traditional songs that the van traps the van traps that the van traps that the von traps sang, but they think, hey, let's get Rodgers and Hammerstein to write a number or two. Rodgers and Hammerstein are like, we're not going to write a number or two. We'll write an entire musical or we won't do it. So they're like, okay, if you insist. And so the rest is history. They write Sound of Music. It's a smash. It becomes a movie. The only other thing I want to say about the play production is that it is a little bit different in that it contains two songs for Ilsa, the Baroness, and for Max. And they're both kind of One of them is all about compromise, and I'll just read some lyrics. The Baroness says to Georg, You dear, attractive, dewy-eyed idealist, today you have to learn to be a realist. And then Max says, You may be bent on doing deed of daring do, but up against a shark, what can a herring do? Be wise, compromise, compromise, and be wise. So let them think you're on their side. Be non-committal. And then Von Trapp, I will not bow my, my head to the men I despise. Max, you won't have to, have to bow your head to stoop a little. The Baroness, 
Why not learn to put your faith and your reliance on an obvious and simple fact of science? A crazy planet full of crazy people is somersaulting all around the sky, and every time it turns another somersault, another day goes by, and there's no way to stop it. No, there's no way to stop it. No, you couldn't stop it even if you tried. So I'm not going to worry. No, I'm not going to worry uh, every time uh, I see another day go by. So the musical was maybe a little bit more leaning into the political satire, and the Baroness was actually a little bit more of a jerk. They actually made her more ambiguous and less of a Nazi sympathizer for the movie. And same thing with Max. Although Max, I think, is still played in the movie the way he's played in these songs. He just, he had a number where he sang about what a sniveling, sniveling worm he was. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, I think having them not sing is actually the right choice for the movie because mm-hmm. it just, it makes them outsiders. It, it's like, well, you, the real reason you can't marry the Baroness is because she doesn't have a musical number. And the real reason Max will never understand us is because he doesn't have a musical number. So that's the play. Just uh, yeah, you're either in Maria's orbit and therefore musical, and therefore, or you're not. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And the nuns kind of exist in their own world. I guess they're you could say they're in Maria's orbit. Okay, a couple. Of, I want to talk about Julie Andrews really quick, but I'll just talk about Robert Wise, the director, real quick, very quickly. Robert Wise is a problem for the auteur theory, which says that the director is the author, the singular vision behind the film. Because he, in order to prove that theory, you watch movies and you find through lines like John Ford movies are all like this or Steven Spielberg movies are all like this. But Robert Wise is one of those guys who's directed a ton of classic films, but he always adapted himself to the material and to the demands of the production. He's just a great workhorse kind of a guy who did so many different things that are great. He did some early Boris Karloff horror movies, one of the best, which is called Body Snatcher. He did some great noirs, Born to Kill in the Setup. He did some classic sci-fi, The Day the Earth Stood Still. He did West Side Story, a little film you may have heard of. He did one of the best ghost haunting movies called The Haunting. He did The Sound of Music. He did Michael Crichton's The Andromeda Strain. This guy worked from like the 40s into the 70s. He did Star Trek, the motion picture, which is a, a terrible movie, but you can't blame him for trying this first mm-hmm. crack at bringing Star Trek to the screen. And it's not his fault. The screenplay was stupid. All about somebody having sex with a satellite or something like that. Yeah, just basically. A very strange movie. But he, he actually started as an editor at RKO, edited a little film called Citizen Kane, or at least worked on it, was responsible for a lot of the cool opticals. You remember how Citizen Kane, it'll like zoom in on the snow globe and then it'll turn into somebody's eye mm-hmm. and then it'll become a parrot and then like all that stuff is Robert Wise. And then he's, he's Orson Welles always blamed him for mangling the Magnificent Ambersons, which was the follow-up to Citizen Kane, which famously does not, ha- we, we do not have Orson Welles cut. It was taken away from him and like that, that's the most precious, valuable Ark of the Lost Covenant kind of thing if somebody could find the missing footage to the Magnificent Ambersons. But in all of cinema that's like the one of the treasures that's been lost but it's robert wise's fault got it all out at rko's behest once they took it away from orson welles but that apparently gave him a leg up to become a director and started working for a rko and then the rest is history he's just a good workman who did all those movies i mentioned and many others he's very socially conscious he learned i think from watching Orson Welles' deep focus photography, which is where everything's in focus. And that's something to notice about Sound of Music. So much of Salzburg is so beautifully photographed. Mm-hmm. And you can see like Maria will be in the extreme foreground. And then way in the background, you'll see some little canal or, or something like that. And it's all in focus. And I really 
like and admire that kind of photography because so much of today it's like the audience is idiots and they need to know where to look so we're gonna make everything completely blurry except for like the one little trickle of sweat on the guy's nose because that's where you need to look in the old days and especially with this kind of photography you compose the shot in an artful way such that i noticed the drop of sweat even though i can also be looking at how pretty salzburg is so that's Robert Wise. I'm gonna. We've talked about Julie Andrews before on our Mary Poppins episode, but she, we have to talk about her a little bit. So I'll just burn through this. Born 1935 in England to Barbara Ward Wells, a woman trying to make her way, and born of an affair, as Julie Andrews found out many, many years later. Born in 1935, so World War II is breaking out, and her parents are breaking up. Barbara, her mother, marries a guy named Ted Andrews. He's an awful stepfather to Julie. He is violent. He's alcoholic. He tries to break down her door and get into bed with her twice when he's drunk. She ends up putting a lock on the door. I think she manages to avoid actually having him go through with anything, but he's a terrible man. She, he does pay for singing lessons, though, and he does have a music hall act that he does with her mother, and so she gets early exposure to music and she's just gifted by god with this amazing four octave voice just this incredible thing that she got and her stepdad's like we could use this to make money because i'm a terrible evil person and i have a music hall act so i'm gonna pay for singing lessons for 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 her meanwhile civilization's crumbling around her world war ii she's living in the slums this is all to say to jake what you said about the darkness that she comes from she comes from real mm. real darkness probably worse than the the actual maria von trapp although kind of similar in some ways mm -hmm. i mean she really does just she lived in the slums and had to be avoid was physically abused had to avoid being sexually abused and if she did if she did yeah exactly who knows that that's her story and she's sticking to it at least She's still alive. She's still alive. Yeah, oh, she's yeah. still with us, even though Sound of Music is now almost, what, 60 years old? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what? She voiced the monster in the Aquaman movie. Yes, she did. Yes, she oh, did. she chose right. that role over a reprise in Mary Poppins Returns. Yeah, which... Uh, she's smart. She's smart. I think she chose wisely. I mean, if those were the choice, kind of a selfish choice, but she, she chose... Well, I think it's a pretty funny choice. Yeah. But that... If you remember Mary Poppins Returns, there's this whole little bit where they wrote in a part in the, that Angela Lansbury plays. Yes. It yeah. makes no sense. Yep. Oh, she's that they kept it in the movie. Old Why Bed Knobs and Broomsticks. Former oh. Disney star. <laughs> Another movie that was written for Julie Andrews. It was, uh, even that's really funny to me. Like Bed Knobs and Broomsticks written for Julie Andrews. Couldn't get her. Put in Angela Lansbury. She did not accept the cameo role. And instead of cutting it, they just put in Angela Lansbury. Which the fat, <laughs> stupid audience that I saw it with were stuffing popcorn in their mouths. And when Angela Lansbury came up, they were like, oh. So, uh, <laughs> Do you even know who that is? <laughs> it's the chick from Murder, She Wrote. So <laughs> It's Mrs. Potts. It's more Mrs. charming, a better singer. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, so Julie Andrews, at the age of 12, she's cast in this musical review called Starlight Roof with this comedian who makes balloon animals and they set up this thing it's it's all scripted but it's made Which, to look spontaneous by the way is what her cameo 
does. Yeah, which is what the cameo. That's true. That's, that's true. That's what Angela Lansbury, like, it's all so designed for Julie so Andrews. So designed for Julie Andrews. She and they refused. didn't change it. Th- she refused, and they didn't change a thing about it or cut it. And it's that's just amazing. amazing. So what happens in this review is the, the, the comedian's up there. He's making balloon animals. And he's like, say, would any kid like a balloon an- animal? And then little Julie, 12 years old, sitting in the audience, planted in the audience, is like, me, me, me. And she comes up. He makes a balloon animal for her. And then she says, oh, by the way, I can sing. And he's like, you can? Well, little girl, go ahead and sing. And then she stops the audience cold, blows them away with this amazing voice that she has. <laughs> and they go nuts. And so she makes a splash in that. She gets her first Broadway show in 1954. It's called The Boyfriend. She gets My Fair Lady in 1956, Lerner and Laos, the, the premiere of My Fair Lady. She creates the role of Eliza Doolittle. She is the first Eliza Doolittle, one of the, well, along with the Magnificent Ambersons. One of the great crimes of the 20th century in terms of pop culture is that it was never put on film. There's no record of her performance as yeah. Eliza Doolittle, which is... Although you can find little bits of her singing songs, yeah. just like on the t- like Johnny Carson or something like right, that. Right, right. Yeah, you can find her doing stuff like that. But that's that's probably my favorite stage musical. I got to see it on stage once. Yeah, it's great. It was awesome. It's great. I mean, yeah, I've got thoughts about that, but we we can't talk about My Fair Lady today. Anyway, mm. she created Eliza Doolittle, and if you think about Eliza Doolittle. What a part for her. Slum girl who becomes the princess of Broadway is exactly what, I mean, Eliza Doolittle is just written for her. I mean, it's, I don't think it was literally written for her, but it's, it's a perfect part for her, a slum girl who becomes what she becomes in that thing. What's their faces? Rodgers and Hammerstein see her. They actually write a whole musical of Cinderella for her, which premieres on TV in 1957. You can still find that. It's pretty good. She gets Camelot, another learner in Lao in 1960 on Broadway. In 1964, she gets the, one of the big uh, setbacks, two major setbacks in her career. Setback number one happens now. The role of Eliza Doolittle goes to Audrey Hepburn because Audrey Hepburn is a known quantity and a star. And Jack Warner, the evil head of Warner Brothers, is just like, I'm not going to cast this. It doesn't matter how great Julie Andrews is. I'm not going to not put a star in this movie. Well, egg on his face because Walt Disney sees her perform in My Fair Lady, hires her for a little film you may have heard of called Mary Poppins, comes out the same year. Perfect revenge because she wins an Academy Award for Mary Poppins. Audrey Hepburn, who does not do her own singing, (laughs) is not even nominated. Boom. I'm not going to not put a star on stage. I think Julie Andrews is a star and I'm going to put her on stage. Right. So egg on Jack Warner's face. Good for Walt Disney. Whatever you want to say about him. He knew how to, he knew how to recognize talent and he understood. I, Walt Disney, am the brand, which means I can have whoever. I can just hire the best people to be yep. the stars. So great. One of the greatest consolation prizes in, in history. And uh, then in 1965, a year later, she does Sound of Music. She's pretty scared to do Sound of Music coming off of Mary Poppins because it is just, oh, you want me to play another one of these? Like I'm getting typecast. Yeah, I'm getting typecast. And, and I think that's fair. But she works hard with Robert Wise and with Ernest Lehman, the screenwriter, to make it a little less sentimental, make it a little less treacly than the material was. I think that's one of the keys to Sound of Music is that she's actually finding little ways to play against all the the Mm -hmm. stuff that could be corny. Christopher Plummer does Mm -hmm. the same thing and it it makes the movie hit exactly the right level of 
Corn, the other big career setback and a real tragedy for her is in 1977. For us all. For us all, yeah. She's performing a Broadway play called Victor Victoria, and she loses her voice. And she goes in, and they say, you've got nodules on her throat. And they go in to do surgery, and they end up making a mistake. Botch it. But they botch the surgery. They destroy her singing voice. She's quoted at the time as saying, well, I can sing the hell out of Old Man River now. (laughs) <laughs> so she just loses it. She's had multiple surgeries since then to try and get it back. She never gets it back. She's been a good sport about maintaining her legacy since then and just saying like, you know what? I got to do Eliza Doolittle. I got to do Mary Poppins and I got to do Sound of Music. I can basically die like the I did those three. And fair enough. But it's still sad that she just lost it all. Although Victoria, Victor Victoria is this very weird cross-dressing bad play so i don't know maybe there's a little judgment in there or something i, I who am i to say that's the story of relegated to voicing monsters in aquaman monsters in aquaman and the queen and shrek and being the in the queen princess diaries and the princess diary yeah she's, she's had a good career kind of second wind uh, as a classy mom figure classy mom figure and someone who kind of keeps her legacy alive at disney shows up you know every Five years, ten years, they trot her out for a anniversary for Mary Poppins or Sound of Music, and she's always very gracious and a good sport. The mm-hmm. opposite of what we were saying about Tom York or Christopher Plummer or something like that. I mean, she understands that Mary Poppins and Maria von Trapp are getting carved on her tombstone, and she's not complaining about it. And she's still with us, and still, I think she just got another award, and she's still alive and around and seems to have her health and everything. So Now Dame Julie Andrews. Dame Julie Andrews, that's right. Christopher Plummer, I'll talk about him. Very, I think that's all we need to know about. I think the other, only other thing to say about Julie Andrews is that she was married to Blake Edwards, the director of The Pink Panther. They had one of the great Hollywood marriage that lasted for years and years and years. I think she had a, a, a busted marriage before that, as people these people often do, but... She seems to be relatively chaste and good by the standards of her industry, at least, which is not saying hardly anything at all, but it is saying something. I will not spend a lot of time talking about Christopher Plummer. I will simply say he was a Shakespearean actor who became a character actor. He's really good in things like The Insider. Michael Mann's The Insider. He was good in Knives Out. If you remember him as the super old man in that, he did that just before he died. He was good mm-hmm. as the evil Klingon in Star Trek VI, the undiscovered country. Oh boy, was he. He was good as the foolish doctor in 12 Monkeys. Yeah, he's, he's, just a, he's a really great character actor. And before that, when he was a young man, he was a really great stage Shakespearean actor. The one kind of anomaly in his career is Captain Von Trapp, where they hired him to just play the straight-ahead hero. And he never was happy that that's what he was going to be remembered (laughs) for. I have a quote here from him. Although we worked hard enough to make him interesting, it was a bit like flogging a dead horse and the subject matter is mine. I mean, it can't appeal to every person in the world, which I suppose is fair enough. He's like, you know what? Sound of Music just wasn't for me. But at least in the last years of his life, he said, you know what? It was for a lot of other people. And so. (laughs) (laughs) I don't hate you all. I don't hate you all. (laughs) Thanks for making The Sound of Music a rousing success. Uh, The movie was a rousing success. It won Best Picture and Best Director for Roger Wise. Julie Andrews was nominated, but not won. It won Best Scoring of Musical, of, of Music Adaptation, which was an award at that time. It won Best Editing. Sound of Music, we talked about in Jaws, how it was one of the first movies to just be released in 500 screens, which was a big deal at the time. Sound of Music 
is the old school. So it was released as a roadshow attraction in 25 theaters. And a roadshow attraction was one of the ways that, the, that old Hollywood was trying to make money when they started to become obsolete. And so they'd, they'd make it real fancy. You'd come and you'd get a, a playbook and the movie would be intentionally a little longer and it would have an intermission, which is still on the home video copies that we see still on streaming on Disney+. Plus. You still have to sit through a little intermission. There'd be a red curtain and you'd dress up and you'd go to the theater and it'd be a more like an evening's entertainment in that old school sense. But the thing about it is Sound of Music was released as a road tro- so attraction in 25 theaters and became the number one movie at the box office that way. And then was number one for 30 of the next 43 weeks. It was the highest grossing film of 1965. It bro- broke records in UK, Netherlands, Hong Kong, Tokyo, not so much in Germany, as I said. It was a number one for a further 11 weeks in 1966, spent a total of 41 weeks at number one, overtook Gone with the Wind as the highest grossing movie of all time. It was still in the top 10 at the US box office in its 100th week of release. <laughs> it was the first film to gross over $100 billion. This thing was wow. huge. People loved it. It's actually not really comparable to something like Avengers Endgame because Avengers Endgame hit quick, burned fast, which is what Jaws taught Hollywood to do. But this thing was a huge popular entertainment that people were still going to four or five years later, still in the theaters. Like Hmm. the critics could sneer all they want and sneer they did. Wasn't a critical darling, but people loved the sound of music. And more so than Gone with the Wind, it's lasted. People still love the, go- the sound of music. They, they mm. just, everybody loves sound of music. It's just one of those undeniable. I've never seen Gone with the Wind. Things, yeah. I Jason. never have either. Right, right. Cinemaphiles see Gone with the Wind because they have to, but it's four hours long and the characters aren't very likable. And whereas everybody pretty much grows up with sound of music. I'm sure my kids will. I know Jake's kids will. I have a strong feeling that one day, Ben will have kids and they will see Sound of Music. I can just envision I hope it. so. So, that is all the context for this movie. Do you guys have any other big picture thoughts about this movie before we kind of talk through it real quick? I don't think so. I mean, my big picture thought I already, our really big picture thought I already spent, which is... The Baroness is your hero. That the Baroness is my hero. That's exactly right. No, it's just the the... The smartness of having the prosaic family drama be the heart of a movie with the backdrop being the Nazis. Yeah, yeah. That little... But like you said, nobody, it doesn't matter how good of an era you live in, you still feel like the good old days are 10 years behind you, 20 years behind you, your parents' generation really had a good... It's gone. You can't give your childhood to your kids. You can't give... Yeah, whatever it is that has the glow of warmth and strength and nostalgia and what you wish you could give to your kids, you can't because the world has changed and it's changing. Right. And this movie captures that feeling and it does it in great, big, stark, George Lucas type of ways, typological type of ways, the way the Nazis have become a type, Mm -hmm. uh, a typological, you don't have to... Yeah, I wonder if Herr Zeller, it's good that Herr Zeller is working for the Nazis. <laughs> exactly. There's just no ambiguity. Right. And you can substitute anything you want for the Nazis. And doubtless people do. And Well, musical theater, in particular, Sound of Music and Wizard of the Oz are 
kind of similar to something I always think about Lord of the Rings, which is Lord of the Rings is hilarious because conservative Christians love it and hippy dippy environmentalist freaky weaky right. people love it. Yep. He he managed to create something that's so potent and rich with archetype and metaphor. Mm. It maps onto your story. No matter who you are. No matter who you are and what your perspective is. You are on the on team light side and your enemies are on team dark side. And it's Lucas managed to do the same capture that same thing mm-hmm. with Star Wars and the bigger you play the type the more you're able to do that sort of thing. And so unless you literally identify as a Nazi, mm. and I would even venture to say that even if you do identify as a Nazi, mm-hmm. you can watch the sound of music and just say, well, I may be a Nazi, but that's not me. I'm actually the Von Trapps. Yeah, the real neo-Nazis right. would say, well, the whoever they are, the people that I don't like are changing the world, just like the Nazis in this movie. And mm-hmm. we got to stand against them. Yeah, it's. I mean, Sound of Music is one of those things that, I mean, I hate to say it, but gay people re- respond to it because of the musical theater of it all. Feminists respond to it because of Maria's free spirit mm-hmm. and all that. Conservative Christians love it because of not Maria's free spirit, uh-huh. because of all the conservative the elements. Patriarchy. The patriarchy is strong. The patriarchy is strong in this movie. <laughs> patriarchy is strong in this one. Give it to me, Rolf. Um, <laughs> uh, you're not one of them <laughs> you'll never be one of them when we've got that that wonderful speaking of yep. patriarchy we've got That's that right. wonderfully patriarchal uh, little reprise where she's like the things of the world grow dim you have become somebody's wife and you belong to him or something like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> wouldn't write it that way uh, today that's yeah that was so funny um, the whole 16 17 song oh yeah oh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that but yeah. ben do you have any other big picture thoughts before we well just pinging off what you guys are saying the tonal shift in the movie is awesome yes it works so well and as a kid it would always grab me even if I felt tired of the movie, I remember that, like the yeah. exciting sense of darkness and like, wait a minute, things are bad. And then it just, he just does such a good job with the suspense after yeah, it's, not it's, having it's, a suspense movie for like two hours, yeah. or two and a half hours, suddenly you're in a suspense movie and it's really good. It's really exciting. Yeah, and it's, it's got it's big really laughs. Good. Would this be a good time to sing about our favorite things? And uh, <laughs> No. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, darling, this would not be a... Um, and it's got a big corny, we're walking over the mountains yeah. while the choir sings. Uh, but it's awesome. It's yeah. so satisfying. And it also feels like you lost something that you'll never get back. And it, it does all kinds of things for you as a kid. Yeah. Like introduces you to the world in that sense. It really mm-hmm. does. It's just super smart. And if you're Come not, on, Edelweiss oh, yeah. is, <laughs> is such a good tool, I mean, <laughs> yeah. for both act, for every act of this movie. And Ernest Lehman had to put it in the, it's in, in the show, it's only at the end, but the, the, the genius, this movie makes a lot of smart adaptations to the material, and one of them is putting Edelweiss earlier having the captain sing it to the kids oh, oh yeah that wasn't in the yeah that's not in the that's amazing. not in the stage oh, no, production no, 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 no that's the gene i think that's the fact that it is there at the beginning and the way it's used at the end is just like it's so smart well let me tell you the other big smart change they made it used to be lonely goat herd was the song that she sang to the kids when they were scared 
favorite things was a song that she sang with the mother abbess before going on her adventure it kind of took the place of i have confidence which didn't exist wow so so that's amazing so what a smart change to make the lonely goat herd just a fun yeah opening to act two or whatever you want to however you want to track the acts and making favorite things the number to sing with the kids like this this movie and i think cutting the two numbers for max and the baroness like they they just made a really it, the the thing I would compare it to is we rag on this movie all the time, but a genius piece of adaptation, just moving something and making it powerful is in Fellowship of the Ring, where they take Gandalf's little speech about we have all the time, not we have all the time in the world. We have all the time in the world. What's the speech? <laughs> the speech about it was pity that stayed Bilbo's hand. And mm-hmm, we, yeah. we have to only have to do with the time. I can't pull yep, the speech right now. To us. But that speech used to happen during the exposition dump in chapter two of Fellowship of the Ring when Gandalf's in Frodo's house and mm-hmm. they move it to the mines of Moria. And that's just the kind of really simple, really smart mm. structural change you can make that can make a movie wonderful or make a piece of adaptation wonderful. Yeah. There are a couple of things in Fellowship of the Ring that are strokes of genius that improved on Tolkien, actually. Mm. The characterization of Boromir. Yeah. The move, the shift of that, that speech and just the Sam Frodo going off. Right. Together. All of which Going alone. Of course you are. And I'm coming with you. Like that's, that's Jackson. That's not Tolkien, and it's an improvement. Yep. Unfortunately, all all those things succeeding gave them permission to do all those things poorly in the next two movies and That's do way right. too many of them. But yep. those things in and of themselves are pretty great. So, all right, let's talk through. Yeah, this I, is so much of. You never get. Mm, this makes me want to talk about creative process a little bit hmm. because it's so easy. You, you have. It, you've crafted a musical and it's a stage production and it, and it really works and people really love it. And you're able to leave it and go do five or six other things. And then you come back to it for a movie with fresh eyes and with other people. Mm -hmm. And you're able to just like, man, these are the things that need to change. And we're going to like knock this out of the park. It's beautiful when you're able to do that. Yeah. But so much of that feels like you have to have the freedom to step back and actually have other successes in other places where you come to George Lucas who's like, can't stop meddling mm. with things. There's just a way to meddle and ruin things. And there's a way to just, I don't know. Sorry. I don't know. I, that's, that's no, it's those are thoughts that aren't going anywhere. No, it's true. It's true. I don't know what the difference is. I mean, George Lucas lucked into doing a lot of things right that he still was like, well, I, I, but I still wanted to do it a different way. And so he took things that were right, like not seeing the Wampa and or whatever it's called, the ice monster. <laughs> and well, let's do a CGI. And it's just like, but. Uh, well, the way that I think about it, I mean, the most consistent creative work of my life is writing sermons on a almost week to week basis. And there's, there's this like middle ground with this. There's the. Wait to the last minute. Mm-hmm. First draft, best draft. Mm. There's the get it done early, leave it alone, and come back to it with fresh eyes that can maybe often end up being your best work. But there's a middle ground right in between there of I have gotten so far in my own head mm-hmm. and not gotten enough separation that I took something that was pretty good that could have been great if i had had enough time or separation and i managed to muddle it all up Mm -hmm. and make it a mess and 
Yeah, I remember listening to a Simpsons writer talk, and he said the the worst moments of The Simpsons were when we had exactly the wrong amount of time to do something because they're they're writing comedy, obviously. And he said, "You laugh at if you keep going over something and revising it, it you might laugh at something forty times, but then you don't laugh at it that forty first time, and so that's when you start making stupid changes. Now, yeah. if you can get to." A hundred. A hundred. I don't know that he said this, but I, I think it's true. If you can get to a hundred, then you can look back and say, well, 41 was actually where we had it. But if you're stuck like on 42, then hmm. you just don't have the perspective. You're like, well, I think actually a large part of the creative process, a large part of what separates the men from the boys when it comes to creative work is having good memory for what struck you because it it's not going to strike you every time that you come back to the material. And so you have uh-huh. to remember like that was funny or that was moving and it's not, it's become boring to me now because I've been over it so many times, but I have to be able to look at it and see what moved me originally. What I remember in Stephen King's book on writing, him talking about this exact thing and him saying, just harping over and over on this works for me. Everybody's different, but I really think that this is pretty immutable. You have to get done with your first draft and you have to get so much separation from it that you have forgotten it Mm -hmm. and that you're able to come to it and rediscover it. If you don't, you will meddle yourself into destroying it and ruining it. I think that's true. And that rings true to me in anything that I've ever done, whether it's been writing songs for My Soul Among Lions or the whatever bit of of script work I've been able to do with the Ville or certainly with sermon writing. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just so easy because you get locked in and you know what you think and you know what you mean that the farther down the rabbit hole you get, the more detached you get from the person who's hearing it from the first time Mm -hmm. you're building on things that you've cut because it's already Mm -hmm. there in your, in your head. And it's, it's like you talk about with the problem of knowledge where you're talking to a tech guy. Mm-hmm. You know, you have no idea what he's talking about, but he does. Right. And it's because he has no grid to understand how little you understand. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so you've got let it be super fresh or really come, uh, let it live and come to it with fresh eyes. Yeah. Right. And finding that in between or living in between is living in a muddled mess. And a lot of preachers actually end up living there because they don't have time week to week right. to let a sermon live and breathe. Right. You have to be sympathetic to that because you want to respond to the needs of people in real time, which means you don't want to write it a year in advance either. That's right. As much as that might give you some artistic freedom, it's not going to give you the best actual it's, sermon. It will give your people what they need. Right. Yeah. So that's why a lot, I think, and I don't want to, justify procrastination, but I think a lot of the better preachers who are also pastors are those who are able to just put it together at the at the very end of the week because they're able to live with the people and then that first draft, best draft at the at the eleventh hour ends up being pretty serviceable. But I would say those people, what's good about them a lot of times and what's good about you, Jake, is you're living with the material for the week. It's not like the, the material is right. occurring to you. You're living with, right. You have to live with the material and with the people. You can't just be like, I wonder what I'll say tomorrow no, on, on yeah. Saturday at 946. Yeah. 
Actually, I would say this movie, if you want to, the songs that we were kind of making fun of, in particular, whatchamacallit, the, the love song. Must have done something good. Must have done something good. I think it probably exactly arises from that sort of problem. Apparently, it was one of the, the whatever it replaced was one of the last songs that they wrote for the Broadway production. They never liked it. And then they went back and tried to come up with something for this and came up with, you know, it's like, I, I don't know that they, that they ever had proper perspective. On yeah. Here's, here's the song it replaced real quick. It's very short called an ordinary couple. Mm-hmm. An ordinary couple is all we'll ever be for all I want of living is to keep you close to me, to laugh and weep together while time goes on its flight to kiss you every morning and to kiss you every night. We'll meet our daily problems and rest when day is done. Our arms around each other in the fading sun. An ordinary couple across the years will ride, our arms around each other and our children by our side. Wow, that's... And you can totally see why they hated that. That's it's, horribly it's, a, it's bland as bland, but it's not offensive like the... <laughs> right. <laughs> like the new one. No, but you can see why they tried to do something oh, yeah. that Definitely. actually had something to say about the relationship. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I can't fault them There's for that at all. absolutely nothing Right. Yeah, that, that. That, that song is empty. Yeah. It's yeah. vacuous. Yeah. That's the... we. We nailed all these other songs and we managed to tick that box. That's actually the old musical style that I was describing. That's like, Astaire needs something to sing to Rogers. So it's not specific to their relationship or their characters, but it's maybe it's a nice song that a husband and wife might like to sing to each you other. You got it off. You got the job done. And then you hate yourself because you wrote that. You let that by. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolute pap and nonsense. But the opposite of Pap and Nonsense, The Sound of Music, which we were talking about. So you start with these pre-credits, you see the snow and the wind, and it's... And uh, then Austria! Yay! Mm-hmm. Helicopter For- shot. Right. And then the most beautiful girl in the world! Yay! <laughs> Yay. <laughs> <laughs> with the most beautiful voice in the world. Well, let me ask you this. Is this movie, or is this moment, has it lost its power because it's it's just so iconic and it's the cover of the 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 blu-ray and everything and it's a poster and we just it's like indiana jones running from the boulder or something can can you ever actually have a fresh can you ever actually live in this moment or are you just kind of watching rocky run up those stairs or just one of those things that's been so absorbed into culture that it doesn't work. I'm not arguing one way or another. I'm sincerely asking the question. Well, I mean, since I hadn't seen it since I was a kid, I it worked great for me. Yeah. I mean, I'd actually, I'd looked at this helicopter shot a few times to watch it, but it didn't have the first 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. Just going over the mountains. Yeah. It was just the lead in to Maria in the Meadow. And I forgot how long it was, but it's super effective. And I feel like actually... It's better going back to it after Lord of the Rings because Lord of the Rings made it very tiresome, mm-hmm. this kind of thing. But this felt fresh. This Robert Wise has a better eye than Peter Jackson. Mm-hmm. And what he was doing is more beautiful. Yeah. But he's also got Salzburg and that mountain. Yeah. It's yeah. Just... yeah. I mean, it doesn't feel like it did as a kid, but that's because I've seen a thousand documentaries and hmm. Peter Jackson and shots like that before. But Still, I do think that the composition, like mm-hmm. you're saying, it really holds yeah. and works. And I think, okay, you can step back and it's overplayed enough and that you can't help but be a little meta about it and sort of sort of laugh at this sort of laugh at the silliness of, well, this has nothing to do with anything mm-hmm. and <laughs> but it but it does. It's like but it does. It, it's and, like the whole yeah. free spirited like we're we're I don't know. It's like 
the movie is like, okay, the mountains are going to be symbolic of like life and happiness. And then the movie is basically going to follow through. It's going to begin and end with the mountains. You're going to have a big song about the mountains. You're going to have, it just, I don't yeah, know. It works. It, works. It, it, it worked well enough. I will say every time she steps into the grove of trees, it's a shock for me because it's so <laughs> not part of the iconography. <laughs> I mean, in a good way. Right. It's like, it draws me into the scene and it, like, like I'm watching Rocky on those stairs, but then what happens after Rocky's on the stairs? I can never remember that. So just when she's, when we finally cut in, punch in for some close ups, and then she steps into the trees and everything. It's beautiful. And then what a mic drop for her to sing that whole song before the credits. And then she hears the bell and she's like, oh, no. And she runs off. And then, right. and then we swell up and the thing comes on. <laughs> and it's just like, yeah, you're in f- for a great movie, buddy. Do you guys want to? So this, where is it? Where is it? Okay. This was number 10 on the American Film Institute's list of the 100 greatest songs in movie history. I thought it might be fun to see if you get how many of the ones that beat it you guys could guess. I'd, I'd say at least. Songs in. Film music history? Yeah, famous songs in movie history. As time goes by. Yep. I think you're going to be able to nail at least four of these pretty easily. A Whole New World? No. I don't think there's any Disney on this particular list. No Disney. There's at least... White Christmas? White Christmas is number five, yes. Uh, As Time Goes By is number two. You still haven't named number one. Ben, any guesses? You guys have not named some... There's at least two... Obvious, obvious ones. Uh, really obvious ones, yeah. What have we said so far? What has Jake said? As Time Goes By and White Christmas. I just can't get As Time Goes By out of my head right now. It was the first thing to pop into my head. and Oh, there actually is a Disney song, but it's a very old Disney song. <laughs> Whistle while you work. <laughs> <laughs> nope. You're one movie off. Okay. It's from, I believe, the second animated classic Disney movie. It's a very famous song. I believe they use it as their logo music. Oh, oh, when you wish upon a star. Yes, sir. Oh, yeah. okay. The most famous song is a ballad. It's sung by a young girl. It's one of the most famous songs in the American songbook. Oh, right. It's from a movie that we don't think holds up, apparently. Yeah, yeah. Over, somewhere over the rainbow. Yes, sir. Oh, it took me duh. a second to. Of course. The third song we talk a lot about. I always say I don't like the movie as much as a lot of people, even though I acknowledge it's a masterpiece. It's a happy tune. You guys doing something Singing in a substance? Yes. Oh, duh. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> brains. Wonderful <laughs> brains. <laughs> We're so fast. Yeah. <laughs> so quick on our feet. Somewhere over the rainbow and singing in the rain should have... I don't know why that... <laughs> no, how did I pull as time goes by before I pulled that? I don't know. Number don't four know. is sung by a woman who Julie Andrews beat that we talked about, but not in the movie that she beat her. And I said something about Breakfast at Tiffany's. She said, I think I remember the film. And yes, as I recall, I think uh, we both kind of liked it. Moon River. Yeah. And then White Christmas. Then we have a pop song from the movie The Graduate. If anybody knows that. Uh, I've never seen that movie. Here's to you, Mrs. Robinson. You're trying oh, to seduce me. Simon and Garfunkel. And then we have The Way We Were from Barbara Streisand's The Way We Were. And number nine is associated with John Travolta. That would uh, be a dead giveaway. Even Grease if light or summer days. Not from Greece. Very, f- arguably the most famous disco song of all time. Oh, Saturday or uh, oh 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 oh. Staying alive. Stay, Staying alive. Thanks. Staying alive. <laughs> I, I pulled the movie instead of the song. <laughs> right. <laughs> Saturday Night Fever. You know the, the song. <laughs> uh, okay. So uh, the movie starts. We have the credits over beautiful Salzburg. We have 
then we have the nuns. We settle into the slow rhythms of this movie, which was designed as a roadshow attraction that you go and you see and you have your playbill and you sit and there's going to be an intermission. And I really love it. I really love sitting in that church and hearing the choral music mm, and, yeah. and not actually getting back to Maria for a second. Obviously, as Ben was alluding to when he told the real story, it's a little trite with the religion, but it manages to convey a lot of religious feeling at least, which doesn't hurt anything. No, it doesn't. And it plays it as sincere. The religious people are actually wiser. Yeah, the mother They want to know the is, will of God. Like, they're, yeah. they're better than you. Right. Yeah, <laughs> the movie the, does not hate the nuns. You could argue that it makes the nuns cute or whatever. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. It like beatifies them it, or something. And then uh, how do you solve a problem like Maria? I'd like to say a word on her behalf. Maria makes me laugh. (laughs) (laughs) If someone doesn't hate musicals, or if someone does hate musicals, I'd say this is the moment where they probably tap out. (laughs) I mean, maybe they already left when Maria... But I think somehow the mountains... This is Especially back when you didn't have... I mean, how much did they spend on that helicopter shot? Yeah, I'm sure they spent a lot. It's not like they had drones that could just pop up. Yeah. With gopros and hd cameras well and there's something a little different about a bunch of nuns striking poses and kind of doing everything it's just like hey it's a musical if you can't handle the inherent corniness of a bunch of people singing about stuff then you're in the wrong movie well it's a good it's good in a in a it's good to have something like that at the top to adjust everybody in the room yeah, just like right, hey, a will of a wisp, a clown, a clown. Yeah, you know, so it makes everything go down right easier if everything is better than that. But again, remember that Hammerstein said his vocabulary wasn't big. I think he actually said it in reference to this song, which which is wonderful and has a lot of the wordplay that we would associate with like an Astaire and Rogers song or something like that. With with like all that jazz kind of or uh, what's the thing? What's the number that she opens up? Temple of Doom with anything goes, that kind of thing. But it's a Willapowis, it's a clown, it's Flipperty not gibbet. a Flipperty gibbet. It's it's just kind of normal people. Even the clever words are normal people, clever words. And Maria's going to come in and she's going to roll her eyes. Maria's not, she's like, oh, well, they caught me. Now I'm in for it. She's She's not perfect. She's not. I mean, she's pretty perfect. In the next scene, she's going to say, oh, it's terrible, Reverend Mother. I can't help singing wherever I go. <laughs> <laughs> no, but she's uh, also going to say, you know, <laughs> I take to washing the floor as soon as I see her coming. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The real Maria Von Trapp, by the way, spoke very highly of the discipline in particular. She's like, I needed to kind of be broken by by the nuns, and I'm very thankful that for for all the trappings of of that stuff so just a point of interest and then uh, she's gonna go see the reverend mother Uh, anything else you guys want to say about how you solve a problem like maria it's a wonderful number i don't know that i have anything profound (laughs) a wonderful number yes thank you ben i'm glad i circled back maria von trapp does make a cameo is it in that I looked it up. It's in confidence. Is she? She starts oh, is her journey. She's, she's on the like bus a, or something. Oh, it's she, no, no, she's no, no. not she's on in the, the bus. background. Uh, just a, on, like, in an archway, you can see her and, and a couple of her kids. I think. That's okay. awesome. Yeah, I thought it was the old woman on the bus because that was the only face you yeah. could actually. But I was wrong. Well, if you imagine seeing this on a giant, like movie screens, now we have to pay for IMAX to get a big movie screen. But for a roadshow attraction, this would have been on a giant screen. So you would have been able to see who was standing in the Mm -hmm. arches. This movie was not really designed for home video. 
I love the scene with the Reverend Mother because specifically because it reminds me so much of the beginning of every old James Bond movie. Like she just goes into the office and there's this authority figure that is like, I have a mission for you. (laughs) It's just just played so straightly. It is exactly like, um, well, 007, your, you know, your free spirit has gotten you in trouble again. (laughs) Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to (laughs) settle down and become stable and married. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) I did spend a lot of time thinking about how Julie Andrews, even given her dark past, can get away with lines like, I can't help singing wherever I am. It is incredible to be able to sell that kind of material and not just come across as the most obnoxiously goody two-shoes person in the world. I don't know how she does it. I don't know. She's She's just really talented and she has a little bit of innate darkness to her and she's just the right person to be able to do that stuff. But I don't get it. Yeah, like, it's weird. It should fail. This movie, the critics are right in that it wants to hit you over the head with a Hallmark card. There's so much material that shouldn't work, really, that we should resent, but we don't. And we would if it weren't Julie Andrews. Yeah, and I think we would if it weren't Christopher Plummer mm-hmm. later on. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking of the Peter Jackson, Lord of the Rings. Now I'll rag on them a little bit and the way the women are and Liv Tyler as Arwen. Like, <laughs> embody purity for me, please. And she's just so kind of boring and to be given the task. Yeah, vapid. To, to be given the task to embody all feminine purity and singing and joy and, and, and then to just do it and make it human and make it relatable and make it lovable and not have the audience throwing up. It's amazing. And just pull off the next number, the I have confidence number without making the audience throw up. She's literally like hiking up her skirt and like doing like the Looney Tunes thing where you kind of strike a pose before you. Yeah, you but know. She, she gets away with all of it because she infuses it with her own insecurities and just a complexity of like, I know this is a silly song, but also this is who, this is who I am and I'm not ashamed. I don't know. She does a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. The whole scene. Yeah, she's scared. She's, uh, I love, oh, help, in front, when she says, yeah. oh, help, in front yeah, of the... Yes. And this is a great place to notice all the deep focus photography and everything, just how beautiful Salzburg is. Compared to the Batman, you want a, a negative, beautifully shot movie. Everybody loves the cinematography, but you never just get to see Gotham and it's like all in focus and everything. It's always like uh-huh. a little sliver of Colin Farrell's nose is in focus or something uh-huh. like that. I just get so tired of that kind of thing. and modern movies i love it she walks well but come on reeves gives you the impression of gotham yeah yeah nobody else it's just an easy comparison point it's great and i like the way that movie is shot and you could argue for the material having everything kind of murky and out of focus is the right the right right, move but man i wish everything's in focus in uh, batman returns yeah well (laughs) then you've successfully stopped all over my point that is the best counter argument. So she goes into the house. She goes into the she 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 pulls the Beauty and the Beast move, which is a kid I always hated. Where you, she's going into the West Wing, or instantly the second she walks through yeah. that door, she's not supposed to be there. We don't have to have any servant tell her. And I I always hated those moments as a kid. I would hide my eyes or run behind the couch or something like that. There's just something so scary about watching a character walk into a situation where they didn't belong and where some scary authority figure was going to be mad at them if they caught them. I just, those, I found those scenes very triggering. 
And then the captain comes in. In the future, you'll remember there are certain houses in this room, not certain to be certain, <laughs> certain, certain, certain houses, houses in this, in this room. room. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> this one. You're fired. <laughs> Is this movie a feminist masterpiece? No, I did stumble across those articles, and a lot of them point to this section where she's like. Uh, a whistle is for dogs, sir, and what's your signal, and all this kind of saucy, <laughs> yes, sir, kind of stuff. She doesn't take any guff from the patriarchy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> if you want it to be. <laughs> well, that's, that's what the article that I read said. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and if I want to read a lesbian reading on Maria and the Baroness, I guess I could try to do that, too. Okay, I wasn't quite fair, but... I mean, I guess she does stand up to the patriarchy. I mean, maybe if she wasn't Julie Andrews. Right. But she happens to be like, as you put it earlier, picturesque embodiment of feminine purity. Mm -hmm. Like, as long as she's that. (laughs) She can do whatever she wants. (laughs) She can can get away with a lot. Well, and also... I, I think I've probably talked to Christians before who say this movie is feminist. They're like, well, actually, a woman should uh, always be demure and submissive in this movie. You shouldn't be like Maria. You should respect authority. And that's just such a one-note view of what actual feminine purity looks like, what actual marriage looks what like, deference what, what looks actual like. deference. Like, like, actually, young men should be looking for a wife who will not let you blow a whistle to call her who will stand up to you if you are trying to be a tyrant. That is part of the whole symphony of feminine deference and submission and all that. And let's I mean, not this just is focus a re- on this one is little a- note of that symphony. Yeah, and this is, this is a reverse taming of the shrew type of a story in that sense. And there's a reality to what a good woman and a good wife brings to every, every man. Right. And if you, if you don't understand the dance of marriage and i mean i don't know maybe there's a reason why your marriage sucks dude yeah the dance involves being challenged by your wife and being told to cheer up and not be such a grump and not be such a tyrant and And then take it all out on the kids right and then sometimes the kids are lying to you and you send them to bed without supper and that's fine too and sometimes you say they're not going to sing and then sometimes the nazis force you to sing This this is all part of the dance it's all part of the dance and sometimes the baroness watches the dance she sees what's going on. Anyway. She knows. Yes. <laughs> Feminists, you can get up off our movie. And Proud Boys, you can get up off our movie, too. It's not for either one of you. It's about the actual dance. It's a sophisticated psychosexual drama, like I was arguing earlier, that actually understands how adult relationships work. So put that in your pipe and smoke it, whoever we're talking to. Uh Plus, it's got all these lines that are super conservative. Like, what's incorrigible? I think it means you want to be treated like a boy and stuff like that. <laughs> uh, do you guys think that the kids are too? I mean, you could you could argue if anything sort of lowers itself to the level that the critics accuse. If anything lives down to what those critics were saying, it would be the kids being kind of a little syrupy. Maybe the portrayal. I mean, I don't know that I'm arguing that. I'm just asking the question. The I movie mean, gets away with a lot. It gets away with tons of shorthand all the time. Yeah. And yeah That's you, an art. Yeah. Yeah, you could quarrel with any number of little bits of this or that with the kids. I'm 17 and I don't need a governess. Right. Stomp, stomp, stomp. 
I like the word shorthand. That's 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 a helpful word because it is shorthand. It stands in for a bigger reality that we all understand and that makes sense to us as opposed to the bad version, which is just circumnavigating and not actually portraying anything of what the dynamic of these relationships would would be. Yeah. It's actually a good way to reframe good cliche versus bad cliche. Yeah. There's cliche and there's short shorthand Mm -hmm. and knowing the difference is all the difference. And sometimes the difference is in your delivery. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's it's in it's so much in the detail or the nuance that it's kind of pixie dust. Right. What's the difference between cliche being cliched, and what's the difference between an effective use of shorthand? Mm-hmm. Well, and the fact is, yes, this movie is about things that we're sentimental about: young love, freedom versus tyranny, fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, all this stuff. But these things are central to the human experience. A lot of kids are actually pretty cute and a lot of joyful times happen between parents and kids. And it's nice when fathers... Fathers can tend to be gruff and overbearing, especially without a feminine touch. And the kinds of critics that I was reading at the beginning, it's like they don't want movies about the things that are central to the human experience. They want movies about things that are peripheral to the human experience, weird, neurotic, crazy, creepy things. That's right. That's right. It's like... I don't know. If you try to be sweet, the critics are like, stop lying to me. Right. You can't do that. That's not true. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, I I have a kid right now. I have a a one-year-old. She's a lot of work. We were up until four o'clock in the morning with her screaming. It wasn't fun, but an awful lot of the time, she's very cute and we love her a lot. It would be stupid (laughs) if we said a movie could never portray a little kid as being cute. And lovable because that's very central to my experience of yeah life right now. <laughs> yeah, I think the critics don't know the difference between sentimentality and mere sentimentality. Right. They just think, well, this is only sent. No, it's not. It's like sentimentality, true to life, shorthand, like serves a purpose, tells you something. Yeah, I think maybe the way I would frame the difference between bad sentimentality and good sentimentality is maybe I'd say the difference between like exaggeration and a lie um mm-hmm. the metaphor i was actually thinking about before this uh, when i was trying to think out like raiders of the lost ark is a perfect action movie because it's always exaggerated but any one of those things could happen they just don't usually happen to one man in that tight a frame of reference that quickly like but most of that stuff. <laughs> yeah, usually it would a giant oh, shut up. boulder. <laughs> shut up. <laughs> Jesus me. It, at least a year goes by until. Right. You have to jump onto a truck. Yes, you have to jump onto a truck and fight Nazis. <laughs> my, my point is, in, in terms of the physics, in terms of what a human body can endure, you know what I mean? <laughs> Compare that to Indiana Jones hopping into a fridge and it getting blown by a nuclear thing, which everybody hates. It's because one of them is an exaggeration, admittedly, Ben, an exaggeration, and the other one is a lie. When it comes to sentimentality, part of what feels like a lie actually has to do with the underlying sentiment itself and how much of it is guilt-driven, right. I think. So there's a, there's a, there's a, a guilt-driven sort of sentimentality that makes you sick to your stomach because 
it is sentimentalizing the things that it feels bad about. And that's the way I feel about Dickens. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't mm. like Dickens' sentimentality because what it says is, I actually hate children and I don't know what to do with them. And I actually hate women and I don't know what to do with them except turn them into these weird stock an- angelic kind of angelic sorts of sorts of things that don't have any real deep taproot in something that I actually love, enjoy, delight in, mm. and have fondness toward and so there's like a there's a there's a sentiment there's a sentimental you look back on your the days when your kids were younger and there's a there's a there's a a a way to be sentimental about that that is guilt driven because you sucked as a dad or as a mom or whatever and there's a way to be sentimental about it that's just like longing for the things that you loved and that you missed and that slipped out of your grasp before you knew it and Again, like with anything, like with cliche and shorthand, it's so so much of that is in the nuance, Mm -hmm. but the nuance has to be, take its cues from the, that taproot. Is it, is it love and fondness and happiness and joy, or is it guilt and regret that is driving this sort of sentimentality here? And you can, you can always feel it. Yeah. I think you can always tell. And Every aspect of this movie is clued in to the right to the right things, both in the script, in the songs, and in the performances, mm. so that it taps into that universal experience that if you have kids and love them and have anything like a sweet marriage or have had a sweet romance, it's just all there. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. This and, movie- and if you've never had that, and all you actually have is guilt, then you can hate it. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm. Yep. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that this movie ever actually. And think it's fake and phony. But it's not. This movie yeah. never lies about anything. The only, like, like Raiders of the Lost Ark with its, with its action scenes, what, it's, what it does is it compresses and it exaggerates. The captain wouldn't come around that quickly, probably. And if he did, it wouldn't be right after he arrived with the Baroness. Mm -hmm. And if it's those sorts of things that you can quibble with, but that's just heightening things a little bit, Mm -hmm. exaggerating things a little bit for dramatic. The kids wouldn't be that bad and then that good. But would all these things happen in some order, maybe to a larger group of people with a larger frame of rest? And do these kinds of things happen all the time? Have they happened to us? Yes. The movie never lies what tracks is she's patient she's kind she doesn't throw them under the bus they feel guilty she continues to be sweet and she opens up the world to them and makes it fun again and they all come around and decide they love her and feel bad and guilty and sad but they're not all going to sit around and cry at the dinner table because they put a frog in her pocket right Mm -hmm. or a pine cone on her chair and no but that again it evokes something that's real it's not telling a lie like the Christmas shoes is or Charles Dickens or any number of things that we would accuse of being mawkishly sentimental. Those things are saying tiny Tim actually exists and he's exactly, and he's a little angel who would never put a pine cone on it. It's just, it's just lying about what a kid is. It's lying about what a woman is. It's lying. Um, This movie, this movie never does this. Also this movie gestures, it doesn't go into the periphery of human experience, but it gestures towards the periphery of human experience and it gestures towards a lot of darkness. It has a lot of darkness. I mean, A, like we said before, 
they do pay a huge price. I mean, how when I think about these critics accusing it of being mawkish, it's like, how big of a price do you need the Von Traps to pay for their happiness in order for you to feel good about this? Does somebody need to die? Because they lost Austria. Von, Von Trapp is <laughs> never going homeland. back. They lost the family estate. They lost their wealth. They lost their status. They lost all their friends. They lost Uncle Max. Right. Everything that meant anything to this man, he sacrificed for his family. How much more do you need? Do we have to shoot Liesel? I mean, re- right. I mean, honestly, like, does Maria have to die? Does somebody have to be carried out off to the concentration camp? What price is high enough that this family earns their happiness? It turns out a lot of people do sacrifice and then do get happiness. That is how life works. And it's only about assigning the right price as to whether drama feels false or feels true. And this movie, I think, assigns a huge price. Yeah. And even... Apart from that, you have the Baroness, you have like other things happening, interesting things. Liesel and Rolf, like there's some complication, there's some darkness, there's some sexuality to like, this movie just isn't what I think people accuse it of. I think they get to the nuns dancing around and they they never get past that. They never see what's actually there, which it turns out is a lot. Okay, so we have dinner, enchanting ritual, something you learn from the Abbey. The children all cry. <laughs> and then we have Rolf and Liesel. This is probably the other scene where I am 16. This is kind of people who love to hate musicals, love to hate I am 16 mm-hmm. going yeah. on 17, which I don't understand at all. I think, it's, I think it's A, it's a really fun number. B, I just don't think, I mean, people think, I guess they see Liesel and they just think like, a pad for men to write on. They, they think mm-hmm. like these characters are cheesy. But it's like, hey, it's not going to work. Rolf's going to be a Nazi. Like this right. is this is actually a setup for a pay, for a sad payoff. It's a double setup for two payoffs. It's a setup for favorite things and actually getting it in with the oldest daughter, right? And building that relationship, and then it's a setup for the payoff later in the betrayal of mm. Rolf and the way that the, they lose everything, including. Lisa loses her lover. Right. Right. And it's and it's a setup for Maria and the captain to have a successful romance that's not I mean, it's it's the song is supposed to be naive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's a setup for like, no, actually love look doesn't look like that. Like the man and the woman thing. You guys, you're your kids. Well, also I think it's not that naive. I mean, assumed pretty tongue in cheek. Assumed guilelessness is one of the oldest erotic tricks in Mm -hmm. the book. And I think Liesel kind of knows what she's doing. I mean, she's a little naive. She goes, wee at the end. But she also, she knows the effect she's having on Rolf. And that scene really evokes, you know, if you've Mm -hmm. ever had the, am I going to kiss her or not Mm -hmm. moment in your life. Mm -hmm. That's true. Your life, little girl, is an empty page that men will want to write on and then she repeats to write on as she leans into him. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, and she's that's like, like, that's pretty spicy. That's pretty, she knows what she's doing and she is like, oh and, yeah? And come on, have you, you like to write on me? Have you never seen like a 1930s <laughs> that's what, that's movie? That's what, it, what it is. Yeah. That's what it is. You can cringe at it, but that's exactly, she's like, oh. It totally is. Yeah, you, would you like me to be your empty page? <laughs> Actually, Oh, that's intimidating uh, suddenly now. Oh, yeah. I just took away the power that you thought you had. I have more power than you think. Right. And the power is called sex. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's all right there in that uh-huh. Well, and the greatest sexual icon of the 20th century, Marilyn Monroe, built a career around, I just fell off the turnip truck. I don't know what I'm doing around that kind of innocent 
availability. Right. Um, it's an old, old, old trick, as old as the hills. Liesel is doing it with youth and with naivete. I think that's there too. But there's also some real seduction going on in this scene on both their parts. It's not just yep. Rolf. No, it's just the youth, yeah. youthful dance. Right. That it's hack and kludgy and clumsy in its way, the way that kids are. Mm-hmm. But it's got its own potency. Right. It's, a, it's also like a brilliantly choreographed dance scene. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. Like it's kind of awesome watching mm-hmm. the It's like, this, this is... This is great. And the rain. And it's the closest thing to, it, it's a nice little, in some ways, throwback to Sarah and Rogers. Rogers. Yeah. 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 I think they found themselves in more than one rainy gazebo, maybe as I think through their Uber. So uh, <laughs> yep. there's, there's at least one pretty famous one. So yeah. 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 It's a great scene and a real great, great example of Rogers and Hammerstein being re- so sophisticated that I think a lot of people miss it. A lot of people take it at face value. And I, I just don't think anything about the scene is intended to be taken at at that kind of face value. It's not just about dumb Liesel and Wolf Ralph or whatever people think it is. It's amazing how many classic numbers this movie piles up quickly because mm-hmm. we're going straight into favorite things now, yep. which like I said earlier, used to be Lonely Goat Herd, but they made the incredibly smart move of oh, yeah. making it favorite things. Mm-hmm. And favorite things is a great number. I don't know. I don't know that. Probably, maybe it's maybe my favorite number. ever. Yeah. yeah. Favorite ever. Just in musically. It's, yeah, it's a perfect number. It's like, a, it's a warm blanket. It is all of, it, it so encapsulates itself. It's just one yeah. of your favorite things. It's, yeah, it, it is all the things, all the metaphors of the song. Well, and it simultaneously manages to stand outside of the movie. It's a song you can use. It, it, that you do use. Right. Well, the greatest art is both incredibly specific and universal. And this, the song is specific to the movie. It's also specific to German Austrian experience, strudels and noodles and things mm-hmm. like that. And yet, it's completely universal. And yeah, yeah, you can you can sing it. And I mean, I've never opened a brown paper package mm-hmm. tied up with string in my life. I don't think, but you understand what it means. I understand what it means. Yeah, yeah. There's a reason. It's like it's a jazz standard too. Yeah, and. It's fantastic. Just you can do whatever you want with that music. You really can, it's, yeah. Yeah, the best version is by that fat guy who died. You remember that version? <laughs> Probably a nicer name for him, like his actual name, but he was like a... a Hawaiian? Hawaiian guy. That guy? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Did he do a version of it? Yeah, yeah. They used it in a television advertisement, uh-huh. I think. Really? Yeah. I know his he version... He did somewhere of, over the rainbow. Yeah, that's and, what I was going to say. Yeah, I think he also did favorite things. Maybe I'm confusing huh. the two. It's possible. Israel something... Uh, John Coltrane did favorite things. Yeah. Yeah, he sure did. Amazing. He did the crap out of that song it's amazing yeah a great song and then jake's looking it up but we're gonna go straight into another all-timer with do re mi and that beautiful montage of salzburg and all that stuff and they're gonna be on the hill and it's a real realize as you watch this listener that it's a stage musical that would have all happened in one like drawing room set and they have Mm -hmm. opened it up and made it beautiful and epic and yeah much i mean yeah not all filmmakers are able to do this no with a musical or a stage play no sometimes they feel very stage bound and talky and stupid and like why did you bother filming this (laughs) spending all this money right but not this movie yeah no it's it's perfect and one thing that i loved it as a kid and i still love it and it still feels a little avant-garde to me 
because you just don't see it that much even in modern musicals is the way that the song extends over a, a montage like a period of days so mm-hmm. suddenly they'll be standing in front of the fountain suddenly they'll be on bikes mm-hmm. suddenly they'll be i mean i realize lots you could name tons of musical numbers that do that sort of thing but it's always kind of a little bit of a shock to me when sound of music does it maybe because the rest of the movie feels so stately and and not that avant-garde whatever other good qualities it has but to extend these numbers through an entire relationship of maria and the kids and not to just have them dancing around on the mountain it it's really cool and cinematic and makes them that much more that much more special (laughs) douglas adams the author of hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy famously complained that la a note to follow so was a lame excuse for a line he said obviously hammerstein couldn't think of anything and never finished the song (laughs) oh come on he, he wrote he wrote this piece on the eve of the 1999 turning into 2000 and said the great unfinished work of the 20th century is do re mi because there's this lame obviously placeholder of a line oh come on and the writer needs to come back and finish it oh my goodness i'd I'd say he was right i just (laughs) said just i'm just reporting don't hit shoot the messenger here (laughs) i don't think he actually did that song douglas adams israel kamaka yeah okay i guess i was getting confused with over the rainbow maybe i've heard another hawaiian style i feel like i have heard kind of a Whatever that ukulele. instrument, ukulele version of it that was pretty, but it's possible I I'm was. I'm sure that there are great, beautiful ukulele versions out there. Sure, yeah. Reminds me a, lo- a lot of Chim Chimney from uh, mm-hmm. that other thing. Mary, Just Mary Poppins. The kind of waltz, m- right. minor key waltz in the middle of a very major key musical, and therefore the song that everybody loves. Mm-hmm. Um, that you get, yeah, you get so much mileage out of that in the score too. Yeah. Because of that. Yeah, but favorite things, of course, switches to major for its chorus, yeah. which makes it even more just dynamic and interesting. Yeah, it's a really interesting song musically, and I don't know enough about music to explain that, but if you want to look it up, you can read all about it. It's probably the most sophisticated musical statement in this mm-hmm. in this song. And speaking of sophistication, this movie is taking a turn now to the Baroness and Georg and Max, and we're suddenly becoming a drawing room comedy with all this kind of barbed dialogue, psychological banter, and even the kind of emotions are a little bit more poet. Where are you? Somewhere far away in a world that's disappearing, you know. Mm-hmm. So we're suddenly in that movie, which we haven't been in, but Christopher the Plummer. Lemonade is still very pink. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Christopher Plummer's an idiot for thinking this was anything less than a great movie. And, and, denigrating his own contribution to it because he's bringing so so much much to i mean this is a world weary kind of man of the world someone that can hold his own in high society with the baroness and you get all that with just a few deft strokes and i just can't think you could imagine like i mean who could you imagine sean connery from the time from the time period like i don't know who you could plug into the role that could bring anything like what the, the different layers that he brings to it. He's just really, really interesting. The Baroness is great. I guess um, one of my big hot takes is my defense of the Baroness, which we've already thoroughly said. She's great. We love the Baroness. We wish she married Georg. That's our story and we're sticking through it. We're sticking through it. We're sticking through it. Yeah. That's our story (laughs) and we're stabbing it in the heart. Uh, I don't know. I've 
Yeah. It doesn't feel like that much of a hot take to me that people really hate the Baroness. I told my wife, I actually feel bad for the Baroness. It's really classy the way she gets out of there, gets out of the way. And she was like, what? That monster, that shrew, that, ah. Yeah, my, my wife also did not like the Baroness. Although she, by the end of the movie, she felt like, yeah, actually the Baroness is sympathetic. I think most, maybe most women don't put themselves in the Baroness shoes. They obviously put themselves in Maria's shoes mm-hmm. and all they feel is the threat of the Baroness, which is real. And, and the threat the Baroness presents to the children. Yeah, yeah, yes. I think that's the that's thing. The, that's the part yeah. that's hard to let go. Yeah, women can that, not forgive the Baroness for scene, sucking at playing ball or whatever. Well, well, you take the scene where she's like, oh, have you heard of boarding school? Mm-hmm. And you take the scene with the ball and that's hard That's hard to forgive, especially for a mom maybe. But yeah, I think that's true. Yeah, totally. But objectively speaking, those kids are a lot and Maria is a saint. And the fact that the Baroness isn't, I don't know how much I hold it against yeah, her. Yeah, how, how far can you push that? Oh, I'm sorry that you, the Baroness, can't play this dumb ball throwing game she's a lot more realistic in the sense of like how many middle-aged bachelorettes or widows whatever she actually is it's not quite clear to me maybe it's clear in the movie and i forget i think she alludes to a dead husband or max yeah he says your husband left you something something i think yeah so how many middle-aged childless not i mean still fairly young and beautiful but right however old she's supposed to be in the movie 30s or whatever childless widows are going to be able to step in and connect instantly with the seven kids of Captain Von Trapp who range in age from 17 to five. Well, yeah. And the comparison is so three or however old Mm -hmm. Gretel is. Yeah. It's like, Oh no, I can't believe the Baroness isn't the most beautiful girl in the world. Who's also a perfect mother to these kids. Who's also a singing magical nun. Yeah. Like it's, (laughs) (laughs) it's so unfair (laughs) to compare her to Maria. Like she just didn't stand a chance. So I feel bad for her. It's like, she's been honing her drawing room barbed comedy skills her whole life. And then it turns out the the game changes on her. (laughs) It's, that's not fair. Like, (sighs) But we're going to get to... And part of what works in Maria's favor is she's also kind of a big kid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She, she's like, she's she's as much the cool older sister as she is, or cool, cool aunt who is mm-hmm. young enough to be able to connect with you more than your mom. Right. And so and then... She I, is the mother figure and she's... Also, the hot young thing. It's like, yeah, that, that's the part that, especially like, okay, gay or right? this, this like, woman's like, how many years older than your daughter? You're exactly. Like, Five, maybe. Yeah. You're, you're <laughs> like, four. And, and you're like <laughs> looking over the balcony, like, mm. it's like the, the Baroness had every right to fight for her man. And I, hmm. I'm only sorry she didn't send that nun packing. <laughs> <laughs> she did send her. She packing. did. I'm only sorry she didn't. <laughs> it's the abbess that you have to thank for yeah. telling her to go climb every mountain do right. <laughs> every captain <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah i don't think just think we're humorously exaggerating here folks i think this is all built into it by the genius of rogers and hammerstein i think they intended these these layers to all be there but now we get to the wonderful scene the wonderful knockdown drag out but between the captain and maria really well played say what you want to about the captain's sudden change of heart two seconds later but the the actual fight between them is 
is pretty perfect. Mm -hmm. The and uh, all Maria's kind of and Kurt pretends he's tough not to show you how hurt he is. <laughs> <laughs> love them, love them all, Captain. <laughs> <laughs> only Julie Andrews can pull that off. Yeah. And only he can say, oh, yes, you are, Captain. <laughs> and somehow not lose his dignity. Uh, <laughs> and then he hears them singing as he's packing. And mm -hmm. Yeah, it's all fairy tale. Yeah, but we want it so yeah. much. Oh, I wasn't, that wasn't a criticism. Yeah, no, I know, I know. I'm not fighting. I'm just saying the reason it works, one of the reasons it works is because... You want a dad. You want a dad. <laughs> you, you so have been primed for that moment and the movie does make you wait for it and you just you just want it you just you just really want it so well and you want a mom and you want a mom that can get through to dad and give you help help your dad be the dad you knew he always could be and wished he always was mm -hmm. right like that's part of it too it's you want every good family every mom and dad it starts with a good with a good marriage. Mm -hmm. It starts with the ability for dad to bring order and mom to bring a soft touch mm -hmm. and for them to work together and work off of each other. And Maria is the first person in Captain Von Trapp's life who's ever stood against him and fought for the kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's what he, that's what he loves about her. Right. And unlike the Pomo. He behaved very badly. Yes. As he says. Unlike the actual feminist version that like Disney would do now, he he doesn't stop bringing order and bringing discipline and That's bringing right. his captain qualities to the family. There's even a specific scene of discipline where he's going to send them to bed without dinner or something because, mm -hmm. oh, you were picking berries, like that, that, that whole thing. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's like he hasn't stopped being Captain Von Trapp and having authority in his home and stuff. It's like... Eh. You can imagine how they'd do the story now. He wouldn't even get to take the gun from Rolf. Like Maria would hit a high note and a piece of glass would fall on Rolf's head or something like that. <laughs> um, and I'm actually telling the truth because in the Anna and the King remake with Jodie Foster, she has to save the big moment where he's going to fight the bad guy at the end. Her and the kids come and shoot off rockets and scare him off or something oh, really? like that. That's, that's exactly how they do it now. Wow. So. That's so dumb. If you want to say that any moment is cheesy, I don't think it's. The captain coming around. I think it's actually the next scene, the lonely goat herd, where we've gone from zero to 60 in terms yeah. of like the captain's like smiling as he ambles over to mm -hmm. watch the performance and everything. Yeah, yeah. They just say, okay, we're done. <laughs> yeah, we're done with that part we of the story. Yeah, yeah. He's come around. Yep. Snap your fingers. Right. Well, and we are layering in some reasons to hate the Baroness with. Why didn't you tell me, Max? I'd have bought my harmonica. Like, uh, she's just a... Uh... Right. Although, there again, sorry that she's not a magical singing nun who solves all the world's problems. Edelweiss, the final song of Rodgers and Hammerstein's musical collaboration, something they wrote late in the show. Like, oh, we need a number for the captain. The last thing that Hammerstein wrote before he died, obviously, is famous for people thinking it's a national song of... Mm -hmm. Austria, even though it's very much not. To the degree that Ronald Reagan was giving a speech. I think I pulled oh, this up no. somewhere. Yeah. No. Ooh. <laughs> That's oh, really man. painful. I don't know if I don't know. Oh yeah. He quoted the song in a nineteen eighty four toast to Austrian president Rudolf Kirschlager, 
and all the Austrian newspapers complained <laughs> like this isn't actually an Austrian song, which is such a Reagan, such a Reagan thing to do. <laughs> it's such an American yeah, such a, thing to do. Yeah. It's like, it's right in there. It's what, that's it, amazing. It's like com- comedian spiel of we're, we're so great. We're the only country arrogant enough to have a world series and invite no other nations to participate. Right. You yeah, know, yeah. Kind of. <laughs> He, yeah. That great Austrian song that we wrote for yeah. you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he, here's wait. Here's the actual Austrian national anthem. I'm going to get in trouble with our Austrian listeners if I chuckle. It's called "Land of Mountains, Land by the River," and this is just a really old, quote unquote, poetic English translation. And okay, here we go. Land of peaks, O land of rivers, land of fields, O land of steeples, land of labors, future bound. Home thou art to prodigious kin, shining brighter than ever been, Austria of high praise. Bold, if battered, ne'er torn, nor tattered, stands thou strong midst Europe fettered, for thee art pledges saith, since days long past, verily thou hast trials of heated temper past, <laughs> Austria of true faith, joyfully jaunting, future bound, as one nation, safe and sound, and high spirits newly found, altogether in, now in jubilation, to thee we pledge with animation, <laughs> Austria, dearly loved. Oh, I'm sure that's much better than that English translation, but... <laughs> well, still, it just, it shows you the genius of Hammerstein. Oh, just man. find a simple metaphor and make it play. Anything else to say about Edelweiss? I mean, Edelweiss, it's a, it's a wonderful number and... It's uh, great. Wonderful of Ernest Lehman to put the song earlier in the story. Now we're going into the dance scene. We're going into Jake's favorite. You, you flatter me, Captain. Oh, how clumsy of me. I meant to accuse you. I'm I'm not saying anything that anybody who's paying attention doesn't already feel or know for themselves no yeah i think no No, it's a great line it's a great scene it's a it's a nice it's especially nice placeholder line for just the writing of the script yeah that's all yeah you got that dance scene between the captain and maria very very romantic very charged very smart uh, it's very smart and the bear the kids there looking on the kids there and it starts as just an innocent little thing with the Carl or whatever his name is. Yeah, gonna teach him how to dance and then Captain cuts in and things are happening. And it it like it plays with man, it's a hot scene, it's a romantic scene. Mm-hmm. It's a if you didn't know what was happening. Right. And it's the now we know this is happening and it's the You can imagine a lot of subtext. Did he used to dance this with his first wife when he was a younger man? Now he's dancing it with this hot young lady. Yeah, You're at the ball and you can just, I mean, it plays on a lot of, a lot of things. Mm -hmm. It plays on a lot of, oh, we just now, we, we got in the situation and we both sort of gravitated and then we both took that step together where we're really acknowledging we're trying not to acknowledge or there's an elephant in the room mm-hmm. and we're both looking at it right now for the first time together. Well, it's also got that kind of little similar to Liesl and Ralph, the kind of uh, how complicit are we in what we accidentally just stumbled exactly, into? Exactly. And you can see the beginnings of every adulterous affair in mm-hmm. it. You can see the beginnings of every romance that doesn't quite feel appropriate. Mm. You can you can just see all kinds of things and and romances that do right, but yeah, it's it's a it's that sort of like we we stumbled into this we're complicit in stumbling into it and it's revelatory for both of us at the same time. Mm-hmm. How far are we going to take this? Yep. Should we take it 
And then the Baroness just steps in and calls a spade a spade. Says yep. exactly what's true and exactly what she sees in a way that embarrasses Maria and makes her feel like she's got to run. Yep. I really actually don't think the Baroness... She didn't do anything wrong. Does anything wrong. She didn't do scene. anything wrong. I, I, know, I, know people I don't care, say she's I don't being care how anybody feels. She didn't do anything wrong. To be wrong. manipulative would be to make something up or to add something, but she really does actually just... I mean, she does it in kind of a I'm the evil Baroness way, but she, she really does just go tell Maria exactly what's happening and force her to face it, which is exactly what a hmm. friend of Maria would do. Yeah, she just does it as the Baroness, as the fiancé of... <laughs> and as an arch character that always does everything like this, darling. I mean, she doesn't do anything mm-hmm. that doesn't have that kind of Grace Kelly thing to it. So, I don't know. Another smart change. Climb Every Mountain used to happen before the intermission in the stage play. I don't know why, but this movie makes us wait through the intermission for the mother abbess to be fast forwarded by my family we always hated this song and made fun of it and my dad would fast forward it so all right you guys are climb every mountain fans no finally kind of this is the one that breaks us even even we're pro musical pro sentiment pro everything but yeah it's kind of breaks the movie for a minute yeah although it's beautiful when the choir sings it as corny as it is at the end Mm -hmm. yeah that's right yep that's right it really, it's it's the fact that, and this is a problem in the stage production, in order to hit the notes, you have to hire an opera singer. That's really the only way that the song can be done, apparently. Mm, and it's yeah. just kind of obnoxious, the, the yeah. vibrato of, of it all. Right. I think we can speed forward a little bit here. The captain is still a disciplinarian. Berries. The Baroness is going to, Maria's going to come back. The Baroness is going to bow out in a very classy way. Stop me if you guys want to talk about anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, something good. We've already talked a decent ab- amount about the captain sure presses it at his advantage there. Speaking of kind of sexual combustibility, he does not mm-hmm. let her know about the Baroness very quickly. He kind of toys with her like mm-hmm. a cat playing with a mouse. And then we're off and running into the third act of the movie. Our couple is married. The Nazi They're on menace. their honeymoon. They're on their honeymoon. Uh, the Nazi menace is rising rolf is being a jerk and then but man if fiddler on the roof just had something like the musical Mm -hmm. it would it would save the whole second half of that movie something like a what like the musical yeah oh i see some right hopeful they reprise all of the songs and Mm -hmm. and the arrangements are really fun with the captain and with they're great yeah they're great yeah. And there's some good comedy with the, I've always loved the, the, the lady that gets the award and won't stop it's, bowing. Yeah, and so, yeah, yeah. Well, and it occurred to me this time, I wonder if this, that lady actually knows the plan and is helping them out. She's, she might actually be playing for time. So it, ex- it works on so many different levels, people. That never occurred to me before. Yeah. I don't know whether that's true or not, but it's a nice I thought. I just think that she's a silly woman. Mm, well, maybe that's what she wanted her Zeller and his goons to think. I like it. I like that read, Nathan. I appreciate that. Yeah. She, she was planted. She's in on it. Yeah, yeah. She's in on it all. She's actually the smartest lady in the whole movie. Nobody's the wiser. Oh, by the way, a and bit of trivia. One of just the, like the nuns who cut the cables. Speaking of the nuns, Sister Sophia, the good nun, I think. It's one of the nuns. I think it's the good one that likes Maria that's always in her corner. She is played by Marnie Nixon, who supplied the voice of Audrey Hepburn in... My Fair Lady and any number of other famous. She was like the most famous studio singer who would come in and replace 
bad singers. So huh. it's kind of fun that the voice of Audrey Hepburn is relegated to being a supporting nun for <laughs> wow. what's her face a year later. I don't know that I have a ton of things less to say about this movie besides the the reprise of Edelweiss with the crowd is one of the most moving scenes in all of cinema. And anytime you can sing down Nazis a la Casablanca, yeah. you're primed for a moving moment yep. in movies. I always cry. It's got that yep. feeling when the captain breaks and then... Mm-hmm. Maria, Maria steps in and then the audience steps in and Herzeller's stewing in his own Sitting. juices <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean the only other thing to say is it's fun that the movie it, uh, everything is so literal like this this giant theater and its walls has become a dark trap full mm-hmm. of Nazis and all the music of the family which represents like their life is contained and trapped in the shadows. Yeah. Like it's just all completely literal and it all works really well. It's like Star Wars or something when yeah. you can externalize yeah, yeah, yeah. all your it drama. It is like Star it, it, Wars. Yeah. It has that feeling. Yeah, it really The same does. thrill that Star Wars would give me as a kid. Like, I, I agree. Like the stormtroopers. Every everywhere. single little bit of light has a silhouette in it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's a really well-conceived scene. And uh, yeah, just, and then it goes into a really nail-biting suspense scene in the graveyard and, Everything like that. And again, Fiddler in the Roof, we'd all like the second half more if it had things like this, which pays off with a fun, cute, the nuns, they, (laughs) I like to imagine that all those nuns were executed (laughs) seconds later. Yeah. You like to imagine that, huh? Well, I'm just like, <laughs> some, there's certain moments in movies where logic need not apply. To, like, what happened to Max? <laughs> were the Nazis happy that Max arranged this escape? Were they cool? I don't know. I guess you're not supposed to think about it too hard, and nor should you, and nor do you, unless you've seen this movie a billion times and are mm-hmm. intentionally being analytical for a podcast. Oh, we never talked about the actual m- moment that's the goofiest musical moment, and the one that always makes me laugh, not with the movie, but at the movie, which is the farewell so long, Avita saying goodbye number when they get through it and then the whole goodbye. audience the whole audience yeah. says goodbye yeah that is the that that breaks movie. that breaks the rubber band that's we've, i always feel that too yeah. yeah we've been it stretches it stretches usually it doesn't break but it breaks there it's just a oh, silly musical yeah. <laughs> but i like that number it's a fun number it's a fun number I don't know if there's anything else to say about it even rolf has a little good in him i guess he won't shoot the captain but he will blow that whistle a whistle yeah. used against the captain Oh man, I'm gonna write a, a dissertation on this. Yeah, uh, the the whistle of authority was if, taken from the captain. If only the captain had made that misstep. Yes, only a small man uses a whistle. That's why the captain got rid of it. Right, man. I had never actually made that very obvious connection though about the whistle being. The whistle is the tool of the authoritarian yeah. jerk in the world of sound and music. Yeah, it's just. I mean, that's pretty fun. Yeah, that's a pretty is, fun thought that I'd never had before. Yeah, it, it is. This movie, see? This, these critics are so stupid. This movie has layers. It has darkness. It has sex. I mean, this is a... And, it's incredible. It, it's really well-crafted. And it all works on a very plain Jane, fun family movie level where you don't have to engage with the darkness or the sex or anything or understand what the Baroness or... Like, you can, you can all just read it as a very simple story, and it works just fine that way, too, which is the sign of a great family entertainment. It's the, it's the best kind of story. It's Egg. just, people are so dumb. People are dumb. People are very dumb. As if it's somehow harder to make something, or as if it's harder to make something 
esoteric that only appeals to a tiny segment. No, it's really easy to do that. I mean, for goodness sake. Throw some of your neuroses on the screen and five other people will feel those neuroses and they will like your movie. And they'll they'll all be idiot critics. Well, comedies never win Best Picture at the Academy Awards. It's a common complaint, but it's a true one. Like, it's so hard to make a good comedy. It's so hard to make a good entertainment. It's so hard to make a musical that works. It's relatively easy to say... Well, we all feel bad about divorce, so I made a movie about divorce that makes people feel bad. Kramer versus Kramer, something like that. Marriage story. Yeah, marriage story. The squid and the whale. Yeah, a marriage is fracturing. I can make you feel bad about that. Oh, good. Good. It's impossible to make sound of music, and you can tell because people fail at it all the time. All the time. And and it's so easy to imagine this movie going bad in so many ways and it never does. You can imagine the remake of it and you just don't ever want it to happen because they would not, they wouldn't be able to do it. They wouldn't be able to get the casting right. They wouldn't be able to get, they would, they would screw it all up. They would screw it up. Yep. They would blow it. Agreed. It is a knife's edge to get through a movie like this. And Rodgers and Hammerstein made a, a living out of it. Yeah. Well, and they never did it as well as this. No, I mean, right those other things have their qualities, but there's, there's, there's nothing like sound of music. Uh, the King and I comes close to being a masterpiece, but yeah, I mean, I think, it, yeah, but it, it's not, it, it, it may be a masterpiece. It may, may not, but I think I've seen it once. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I never, li- okay, I never cared I, in the slightest as a kid about that movie with Yul Brynner. Yeah. yeah. I mean, can yeah. you sing a song from it? Getting to know you. I guess you I could do that one. one. That's but all. that's the only one I think. That's it. Uh, I mean, you can sing every one of these songs, and then there are five of them that you mm -hmm. forgot existed that you also can sing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would say, like the Goat Herd song, yeah, like or Confidence. Oklahoma has maybe a superior score. That might be my hot take. I've never seen Oklahoma. Oklahoma, really, is a really unlikable story, though. It actually, I think it. I mean, I've I've seen it as a kid, and I remember the enough of the beats, but I've never been tempted to go rewatch it or anything like that because it's just such an unlikable story it's doing a lot of the same stuff but it doesn't get the alchemy right the chemistry is just not quite there and so it actually does push the psychosexual stuff enough that the story just ends up feeling kind of dark and bad even though the music is amazing and it's got a handful of numbers that ben Ben, without having seen it would already know yeah and i don't know it's that's it that's what makes it a favorite for like high school musicals yeah like Oklahoma every couple of years is going to be on a rotation at any mm. number of local high schools. And huh. so like I have, I've probably seen it more as an adaptation or not as an adaptation, but I've probably seen it more on the stage than I have watched the movie mm-hmm. for that same kind of. Yeah. I've never seen sound of music on the stage actually. No, and, I, I've never known it to exist on stage. I mean, it does. It's still popular and in, in, reviews and things but i think the movie made such a statement that for one thing most of the stage adaptations actually follow the movie all the changes that i outlined like moving goat goat herd and Mm -hmm. favorite things and stuff most of them keep somewhere in my wicked childhood instead of the song that was written for the stage they they do usually keep the baroness and max's songs because they're fun songs and there's no reason to cut them and it gives if you're gonna hide hire somebody to be the baroness it gives her something to do that's more than what the stage musical would give her you mean more than what the movie would give her 
Yeah, sorry. I mean, if you didn't have that, it's right, a pretty okay. thin part for an actress on the stage. Yeah, okay. But you give oh, her, a, you give her a number. Yeah, you give Max a number. Suddenly, you can attract higher talent that way. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, okay. So we're gonna walk over the mountains, and the choir is gonna sing "Climb Every Mountain," and we're gonna walk to freedom into Switzerland, which we never did. We took the train to Italy, but that's okay. Any other thoughts about this movie before we give it our ranking and call it a day? Don't think so. I'm sorry, dear listener. I don't think we're going to go quite as long as the movie. It's always my goal for these podcasts <laughs> to go longer than the movie. But Sound of Music is three hours long, and I don't think this podcast is going to quite make it, although we did our darndest. We sure tried. We, we sure tried. through lunch. Yeah, but we don't, I don't have anything else to say about it, I don't think. Do you guys? I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, I'm sorry that... <sighs> I don't know. I wonder what happened to Rolf. What's Rolf up to these days? He lives in Argentina. Yeah, probably. Probably. He's a war criminal. (laughs) (laughs) I should make a sound of music too about the hunt for Rolf. (laughs) Jake, how many goat herds out of 47 do you give to Sound of Music? 5.6 million. 5.6 million. That's a lot of lonely goat herds. I hope they all find (laughs) goat ladies or whatever whatever they're looking for. Far, far away. <laughs> what a lonely goat herd. 5.6 million points. <laughs> I, that's a really beautiful song. Yeah, yeah we didn't quite, like, we didn't give that one due diligence, maybe. No, like it's, it's so different than everything else. It's got such a, in, I don't know how to put the right words to it. It's got such a, a discovered quality about it. Yes. The song is beautiful. It's maybe the reason I didn't linger in leading us through this discussion is because the moment in the movie does feel is feels to me one of the more contrived musically kind of lives down to the critics moment just in terms of how did they put on this fantastic marionette performance like it's just so well a bunch of hollywood special effects people put this together like i just i do not buy that they are this good (laughs) then it takes me out of the movie a little bit it's wonderful it's beautiful it's fun it's a good song but uh, that's my criticism um ben how many uh, as a set yeah. as a set piece in itself the drama of the goat herd yes and the song and the way it works like it has this i don't know this like childhood smell i don't mm. know how to put it yeah i agree like this really strong made it just made a really strong impression on me yeah and just and i don't know it's just lived with me my yeah I mean, I think it's similar to Old Man River. Like, Old Man River feels like it was a, a African spiritual, whatever the other one. Edelweiss, Edelweiss feels like it's actually the Austrian national anthem. And mm-hmm. that song feels like it's just a little childhood Austrian folk song that yeah. these kids probably all grew up with and everybody knew. And Maria's really going to town, making it bigger and more exciting. But they probably all are familiar with it. Yeah. That's why I would say Rodgers and Hammerstein are such... I mean, Oklahoma became the national song of... Or not the national song of Oklahoma. It became the state song of Oklahoma. They write these things that feel inevitable, that feel like... It's it's like what Irving Berlin did with White Christmas. It feels like that song always should have existed for Christmas. He just was the one that made it exist for Christmas. And same thing with God Bless America, arguably a better song, certainly an easier song to sing than our stupid national anthem. Uh, sorry, I love America. We don't have to get into the national anthem today. That's not what you want from the end of a Sound of Music podcast. Ben, how many lonely goat herds out of 47 do you give to Sound of Music? 47. 
47. All right, not 5.6 so. billion. I might give it 45, actually. Oh, you're I'm, docking I'm it too lonely the, goat herds. I'm the contrarian here. Oh, man. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to dock it too lonely goat herds. Wow. You're wrong. Because I'm a snob. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why. I don't know how to rate things. If it was Akira Kurosawa's Sound of Music, then you'd give it some extra goat herds. Uh, yeah, right. <sighs> All right, well, I'm going to give it. Uh, Everybody now knows that you're a snob. Yep. They didn't already. Yep. <laughs> Congratulations. You inserted yourself and your ego into the middle of this conversation. Hey, Uncle Max is great. We didn't, we didn't throw any love to Uncle Max. <laughs> uh, no, he is great. He's, yeah. he's really, really fun. He yeah. brings a lot. Yeah, it's one of those kind of stock characters that can either be played poorly or well, but he does a great job with it's it. It's great. Fun it's part. great. Yeah, I'll give this thing 47 goat herds. I'll give it 48. I'll, 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 I won't give it 5.6 billion because I don't want to steal Jake's goat herd thunder. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I think this movie deserves all the goat herds. I think it's kind of a perfect artifact and I love it. And I'll tell you who else I love or what else I love. Well, this is a what, but I'm going to talk about a who that I love as long as we're talking about things we love. I love Bob, the winner (laughs) of our Patron Choice Award of Awesomeness, a new Patron Choice Award of Awesomeness contender, I believe. Uh, Bob, welcome to the Hmm. family. Uh, Hey, Bob. what, what What makes Bob great, guys? If Bob had access to an alpine meadow, he, he would totally go there and sing a great song about it. With a helicopter. Probably, yeah. Running around him. Following him around, yeah. That's fair. Yep. I think you're right. It makes Bob pretty awesome. It does make... I don't know that I would do that. But no, no, no. Bob would. You're not Bob. <laughs> I'm not. If there's one thing we know about you, you're not Bob. All right, well... What about Bob? <laughs> what, 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 would he call a man with no arms and no legs in a swimming pool? Irene. (laughs) Okay. Thanks for listening, everybody. Sound of Music is a great movie. If you have never seen Sound of Music, I recommend (laughs) you watch it tonight. (laughs) Oh, boy. Until next time. Stay ooh. Wrong line. Stay ooh. (laughs) Uh, I'm every man. (laughs) No, you can't do that. No. Until next time. How clumsy of me, I meant to say. uh, (laughs) (laughs) A line from the movie. (laughs) A line from the movie. Bye. That's it.